You probably know this. Those guys? You probably know This is a nice music podcast you and I have going. We talked about Metallica last mm-hmm. week. We, I think we could fill it with some more misinformation this week. Oh, for sure. There, there's. I, well, I noticed uh, last week in talking about the origins of the uh, Danish drummer Lars Ulrich, um, I, I just it hit me as I was listening back that I was using the Netherlands and Denmark interchangeable as though they're the same place. And as we do have a large uh, Danish listening contingent, I'm sure they're very upset to find uh, that I thought that because they are certainly not the same place. However, they're two very different places. I really think that you need to apologize to our listeners from the Netherlands because I don't think anybody wants to loan to like you know be in league with Lars Ulrich. It's kind of a stain on their nation for you to kind of hoist that on them. So. Uh, on behalf of our podcast, I'd just like to apologize to everybody in the Netherlands to, to, for, (laughs) you know. Listen, I I would apologize to the Netherlands, but let's be honest, they don't have Wi-Fi. So let's, that's not, (laughs) we don't need to worry about that. We don't need to (laughs) concern ourselves. Let's do a little geography Um, lesson. Now, listen, all I know is these are European countries. Where exactly (laughs) do you think the Netherlands is? The Netherlands, uh, it is a European country. Okay. Um, it is, uh, let's see. Let's Isn't it one of the ones that's kind of like Scandinavian here. or kind of like nestled between oh, yeah. right on the side of like Germany or something or France? So I, I think like they uh, might have internet up there, probably electricity. It, it, is a, um, it is right next to Germany. Right next to Belgium. Okay, and, and it is uh, that's on the west side. Uh, um, I mean, it's it's kind of a, almost across the English Channel. Um, it is uh, not far from from England, kind of across the. North okay, sea. okay. So crucially, it's on the west side of Germany because if had it been on the east side, I, that might still be up for grabs for having Wi Fi or not, uh, depending on absolutely you know Russian proximity, whatnot. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Absolutely. But no, no, so, no, it is a... Uh, so yeah, our, our deepest sympathies for those in, in Netherlands, and we really, really did not mean to insult you by... Um, obviously, the Denmark thing happens all the time, but but to insinuate that Lars Ulrich is somehow your responsibility, that's our, our deepest apologies. Yeah, I, I think that's really the, the true uh, tragedy here, is thrusting <laughs> Lars Ulrich on a country that had no responsibility for him at all. Right, exactly, uh, exactly. And we just, you know, anyway. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I so, think that was our that was our, our largest mistake. We probably made others. Listen, we don't claim to be biographers of Metallica. Right. Uh, the idea is we're just two, two guys who grew up listening to them, and we like them, and so, uh, or all these bands that we talk about. So I, I, the idea is, is to be a little bit more of, uh, I, I think a little bit more of like, what's what's your experience listening to this band? What did you think of them then? Definitely. What did you think of them now? How did they get to be what they are? And right. we're going to get some facts wrong um, along the way. I thought James Hetfield was black. And I just right. found out he's not. And right. I spent the whole last episode talking about that. And, right, and I thought uh, again, that I had... Mistake on, another mistake on my part. Right, and I thought that somewhere I had like invented a memory of James Heldfield having a mullet. 
you know, short in the sides, short in the front, long in the back. And turns out I didn't, but well, you have to really dig deep actually, into the videos. There's a, yeah. there's a small window, and I'm sure we'll get to this, between the Black Album and Load, mm-hmm. where half of the hair mm-hmm. is gone, and actually the sort of short hair Load look is a big relief. If you've seen any of these videos of the intermediary, intermediary uh, you know, period. And But I, I got to yeah. admit, I was like, mm, I don't think I can bring that up, because I don't know if that's real, or is that just a... You know, fantasy, or is that just kind of a natural, the brain well, kind of picking up on the trashiness of this band and, and just naturally coming to the conclusion that there have to be mullets involved at some point, right? I think that's fair, I guess but, we'll t- I, but we'll t- again, it's I not necessarily we'll, a we'll, fact unless we'll, you unless you verify it, and we don't, do, uh, we don't spend any time verifying anything or... You know, much time we on can't this podcast afford fact checkers. Uh, right, we true, can't true. afford fact check fact checkers. Yet. Unless Wayfair um, comes through, no, if no, you guys we, buy a whole bunch of uh, well, the, 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 yeah, right. I've been told the check is in the mail. So um, <laughs> great. Is that all some, that's in the mail? In the mail. Clear. I don't Let's know. Clear. Maybe maybe it's an eight year old fact checker in the mail. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so I. <laughs> You know, his, I, we, we could spend an entire uh, hour talking about uh, the period of time in between uh, the Black Album and Load and how that was, I, I think, kind of like their midlife crisis. Um, that sounds good. Let's do they, that this they, episode. What do you think? Yeah, well, yeah we're definitely going to do that. <laughs> definitely going to do that. So, so uh, to re- just a yeah, quick man, recap. Let's do it. Quick, quick recap. Mm-hmm. Uh, Metallica is definitely, I would say, one of Jeremy's bands. I definitely, this last week, have been extremely intrigued and gone deep on YouTube, seeing all kinds of documentaries. Um, but last week we covered uh, Metallica's first four albums and sort of their yeah. uh, their saga from the beginning through Cliff Burton, through Cliff Burton dying. Um, and basically up until about the time that the Metallica Black Album uh, recording started, uh, uh, I gotta say, so I got two factoids for you before we go. Uh, one of them is, man, this is a band that is rewarding to be a fan of. Holy shit, man. Mm-hmm. There is a treasure trove of information. Dude, I thought like some kind of monster was like a really cool, like one off thing. Jesus, it was like part four or five, like every single album, there are deep dives of documentaries of them, like just matter of factly recording in the studio for like, like for death magnetic, there's a three hour video on YouTube. That's just them mm-hmm. dick around in the studio and, and time in between and talking about it. St. Anger, obviously there's some kind of monster, but there's also like a whole nother documentary all the way back to the black album. I didn't really look hard for other ones, but like each one of these records has at least a one hour or two hour thing. They have a crazy fan club or something that they've had oh, since yeah. like 93. That is extremely rewarding. Sounds like it's on the par of like the U2 or the Pearl Jam fan club where in particular, I thought U2 was the only sort of self, uh, self-aggrandizing uh, sort of, I don't know what you call it, egotistical enough band to literally have their own magazine that comes out throughout the year for themselves. No. Turns out Metallica's right. got one too, man. Uh, and yeah. it's been, uh, it's been uh, got, they've got some kind of 280-page book that's got the uh, the highlights of this for going on for at least a decade. If it's still going today, it'd be two decades or so because it was in 93 as things started. Anyway, yeah, yeah, man, it has been, geez, like I just watching the whatever they call it, a year and a half thing, which is a good uh, documentary about the Black Album and oh, recording yeah. it and a oh, little yeah. bit after and stuff. Wow, there's a lot of content out there, man. They are, 
Uh, they, they are friendly to the fans, which is really, really they, cool. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. I thought, like, this is a band that's got albums. That's cool. And then there's the one movie that's pretty rad. But, man. And the whole Napster thing, I think, gave them the reputation of being a band that was not cool to the fans. But that is the opposite of, of the truth. Like, they are very endearing to the fans. Like, they, yeah. they give the fans tons of stuff. There was one tour. I think it was the tour they did after St. Anger came out where, I mean, after every single show, they might still do this. I don't know. I haven't perused their website in a long time. But, I mean, they put out the um, the the soundboard recording of the show after every single show. Like, the yeah. next day, you go download it. That's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Some... Endless amounts, endless amounts of, like, backstage and... Um, right you know in the studio some kind of monster was a little bit different than those other ones because the other ones i think are more kind of documenting the making of an album some kind of monster is documenting like the almost disillusion of the band right exactly it's eventual redemption but um so it's a it's a little bit different but um yeah there is just endless yeah endless amounts of stuff they don't shy away from interviews they they do plenty of interviews yep. and uh they're they're they'll they're happy to talk and no, yeah. there's, you're right. You're right. It's very rewarding. This to is be, uh, this is how we get. Uh, this is how we get one episode. Where we're kind of like s- searching around to talk about for Tool, you know, very PR unfriendly right. and fan unfriendly band versus these guys. Like, you know, I I imagine if I were into Kiss more, we could talk uh, much deeper and do multi episode or something. But this is like, sure. this is crazy. Like, I, I know that they're sort of the Led Zeppelin ish of our time. You know. Um, like or one of them like this is just a mega act you know i feel like people in the 80s have u2 and you know we have metallica right and and maybe yeah. people in the well, late 80s also say they have metallica as well right but um man but i i think they're just they're they're fans they're fans of their own genre and i think they they i think they treat fans how they want to be yeah, treated when they were exactly kids. i mean i really it's think awesome. that's that that seems to be the attitude that they take right uh there's not an overt asshole in the band except for maybe lars but right uh, <laughs> they don't they don't have like a bono type figure no. where you're just like man i just can't stand this guy right um you know they're they're really honest they're really vulnerable um they're they're just uh, they they kind of check the boxes of the things that you want them to be. There haven't been many times where I've seen something that they did, and I thought, man, that's that shatters the image of what I thought. They exactly, did. some kind of monster is the closest thing to doing that. But even then, it's just them being honest. It's not exactly, and yeah, really, and like you know, and maybe they're jerks, right? Maybe they're assholes, like personality wise or something like that. But like, it doesn't seem like any of them are prima donnas, you know, which is really refreshing because, like, yeah, like. They're, you know, like Hetfield in particular uh, on the on this. We'll talk about this Black Album stuff, but there was, you know, uh, with the Black Album they started with Bob Rock uh, being the producer, and this guy was like, "Okay, you want perfection? I will just push you and push you and push you and tell you no, that's mm-hmm. not good enough." And we will record and record and record. And Hetfield the whole yeah. time, I didn't see a bunch of him pushing back, but I saw everybody else in the band being like, "Really, man? What? Really? Really?" And Hetfield's just like charging through it, like, "All right, let's do it." Yeah. let's do it let's do it and it's yeah, like there, it was interesting yeah there's and there's plenty there to talk about with with bob rock and and what he brought to them. right and i i you know there's i so let's let's dive into that um sure. in, in just a quick second i did um i asked a friend of mine today um uh, this is a dude who's i think i mentioned him last episode he's just you know kind of in his 50s kind of got a gray-haired ponytail sure. big metal guy you know um uh, iron maiden comes to town he's there every time no right. matter what um 
And I asked him today, I said, what, what about Metallica? Like, why, why did they make it so big in all those other bands just kind of stayed niche metal bands. Right. And he goes, that's the question those other bands have all been asking for 30 years. Yeah. Like they've all, they've all tried to figure out like how did Metallica remain so relevant through that time? Um, and even up to today and the rest of them all struggled to do that. He goes, that's I think the question that, everyone's asked. Well, what do you think the answer is? I think the answer is pretty simple. I think it's that they allowed themselves to change. Yep. They I, allowed I totally themselves agree. to adapt and change. Oh. And, yep. and they, they didn't become a parody of themselves. Right. Um, and then I, I asked him about the 90s. And I said, so what about like the 90s? Were you one of those guys who like hated Metallica through the 90s because they, they changed? And he goes, no, I never hated them. He said, I thought their first three albums were amazing. But he said, I didn't really care for like Load and Reload. But he said, I never, I never hated them. Yeah. Like I, I always respected what they did. And I still think they're great. Right. And they're still really relevant. So, right. no, I never hated them. Right. Um, and I, I'm, me and you were kind of opposite because the 90s is when we got into them. And so we love that stuff. Right, right. Um, Whereas, like, yeah, if I listen to Kill 'em All or Ride the Lightning a little, like, you know, I'm, I can do it, but it's not what it's not my go to. Right. And I imagine we're basically the, no. the flip of what your friend is, sounds like. Right, 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 right. So, so let's pick up kind of where we left off. Where we left off was they had done um, And Justice for All. Um, they had hired Jason Newstead as their new bass player. Right. And they had just, and Justice for All has kind of a hollow sound to it. There's not a lot of bass on it because they were just assholes and they turned Jason Newstead's bass down. Right. Um, they didn't have Cliff anymore to kind of play off of. So um, it turned into, I think, a little bit more of just the intricate, uh, you know, thrashy type metal that they were doing before Master of Puppets. Right. Um, and that's that's on the album, but there's also some stuff that broke into the mainstream, like the song One. Right. Which apparently, by the um, way, was the a, first music video they did. I didn't know it was like the first yeah. one. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. I, I thought that they. I don't think they ever. I, thought, I figured they were one of the ones that had the, and you just don't see them, the Van Halen, you know, girls running mm-hmm. around in bikinis partying right. dumb videos. But no, that was their first no, one. No, I, I, don't, I, I don't think they ever made one because I don't think there was a place for it. Yeah. I don't know where it would have played. I don't know right. how one got on got on uh, MTV. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, you know, they they go on a you know endless tour. I think we looked at that last time, and um, you know now I I did read some quotes, and I, I remembered this from somewhere, and I found the actual quote, and it was Kirk Hammett, and he said after the last show they had played "And Justice for All," like the song, um, and he said he unplugged his guitar and they walk off stage and he goes someone he doesn't remember who but someone in the band yelled like we're never fucking playing that song again and he said <laughs> what happened was what happened was during that tour the the and justice for all tour or i think they call it the damage justice tour maybe um during that tour he said these songs were just so long and intricate and he goes they could see that the crowd they were into it but they would get kind of bored at right. times right and he said they could see that you know the band they were losing the crowd at, at times throughout the show. And, and yeah, the crowd's into it. You can hear, see some videos and recordings of those shows. Of course the crowd's into it. But sure. How many like seven minute long guitar solos can you hear right. Uh, right. before you're like, man, uh, this is good, but this is kind of like the last one they just did. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and he said they, they, they could see that. So he said this move in the black album um, to get a little bit, 
slower and a little bit um, simpler and shorter songs was really just a function of they had just done it. Like they had maxed out the ability to do that type of music on and justice for all. Right. Like that's how they really felt. They had really just, they'd taken it to its limit. There was no place else to go with it. Um, it was, it was hard to play those songs live over and over and over again. It tested the crowd's patience and it was, it was time to evolve and it was time to change. And that's why the black album was so huge. That's why, they're still relevant because they've always allowed themselves to do that. Um, so I, I want to, I'll talk about the beginnings of it, but I mean, you, if you recently watched that a year and a half in the life, I haven't seen that in a while. Um, yeah. So you probably have some good, some good tidbits from that, but I do, I, I do know they, they went and found Bob rock. They didn't care for Bon Jovi or um, Motley Crue or these other bands. They did they didn't really care for those bands at all, but they liked the sound of those albums. Exactly. They didn't. Yeah, I, I, they didn't I, like the way. So I think it was in there, or maybe it's in the Wikipedia. But in particular, he had done before them a, a particular Martley Crew record that they loved the way it sounded. Or whatever. Yeah. Doctor so. Doctor Feelgood. They loved Doctor Feelgood. Right. They loved the sound of, of that of that song, and you know, to their credit, they knew that and justice for uh, and justice for all really didn't sound as good as they thought it should have. Right. And I, I agree. And right. I think that comes from working with this, you know, the, the producer they had that, you know, Fleming McMetal guy, um, or, you know, Fleming Rasmussen, which sounds like a, you know, 70 year old European <laughs> metal sure producer. That's, that's, uh, you know, Denmarkian for McMetal. Oh, for I, sure. I'm pretty sure. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, I think working with a guy like that, he, there was a sound. There was right. a sound right. that he knew in that genre that worked, and Man. that's the sound they were going to get. So, uh, famously, Nirvana for In Utero, right? For never mind, like Kurt Cobain in particular, really hated the overproduced sound, like the cleanliness of mm-hmm. it, and how crazy, like over the top pop it was. Like it was really accessible and really like a classic album. And so he went completely mm-hmm. the other way and went with Steve Albini, who famously recorded a bunch of Pixies albums. Um, and Steve Albini, there's a favorite, there's like a famous letter out there. They wrote to Kurt Cobain saying, I mean, we can do it, but the record company is going to shit all over it until you have to redo it and blah, blah, blah. And Kurt Cobain's no, we're doing it. We're going to record it in two weeks. We're going to do it like the Pixies used to do it. We're going to do it like real raw. It's going to be awesome or whatever and stuff. I, the other day made the mistake of listening to the black album. And then listening to In mm-hmm. Utero afterwards because I just happened to pick up this thing where like in 2013 when a 20th anniversary thing for In Utero came out, they actually got a Steve Albini mix. So what happened with the album in reality was they did, they took it out of Albini's hand, they made the band go to another studio and record some parts in particular for Heart Shaped Box, which is going to be the hit mm-hmm. or whatever, and somebody else produced and mixed it. Now for this mm-hmm. this you know reunion thing 20 years later, they got Albini to mix it and it didn't sound too great and i was like oh maybe this maybe like my little cd player thing that i've got it's like a real piece of junk right now or whatever it doesn't sound too good let me i have this like downloaded hi-fi version blah 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 so i check out this hi-fi yeah. remaster and like man it's a function in that documentary with Bob Rock, you are seeing this guy push them relentlessly. And it's not like sort yeah. of, it's not the computer thing now where you can just change this one note. They're like laying tape down and they're like, look, we're going to get this word right. 
We're going to get that exact phrase right. And they push over and over on the drums and everything. Tons and tons and tons and tons of times. And man, it fucking shows. Like in utero sounds like hot garbage after, which which it kind of does anyway. That's kind of how it's supposed to sound. But dude, it sounds like something you and me would record in a garage compared to the way the Black Album sounds. It is a... It is worth it. They spent eight months in the studio, apparently, making this record. They and, and and you're like, why? Like, how could it take eight months? And you realize that there's actually quite a bit of overdubs and stuff for harmonious vocals and whatever. But really, like, it is just, it's like a trope, like a sitcom theme in that thing that every few minutes you're just seeing Bob Rock. Okay, man, he was really rude to Hetfield. Okay, now it's Lars's turn. Okay, now it's Kirk's turn. Yeah. Now it's Newstead's <laughs> turn. And Kirk is like has a moment where he's like, what are you talking about? I did my homework. He's like, no, you didn't, because this solo sucks. And you're like, what? wow. What? Yeah. And he's like, you want that solo to go out there and be like what you're going to put into the, like, you know, basically on the record? No way, dude. The song is way better than that. Do your homework. And the guy's like, what? And like runs out, you know, leaves the yeah. studio like he's pissed off, you know. Um, uh-huh. And I mean, yeah, and to their that credit, relentlessness, they didn't like that's a that. that's a difference, right? Where it's, you know, it is. It's like the band telling the dude what to do. Versus Bob mm-hmm. Rock uh, prefer, preferred not to uh, do the sound booth thing where the singer's in one little mm-hmm. booth and then the drummer's in another yeah. or maybe they're actually completely recording. He They would get the baseline stuff. Or sorry, that's not the right word, but the the the, the bottom the rhythm track. mix, the demo, whatever, the like live yeah, on the floor the with all of them. And yeah. and even yeah. some of those, he made them redo it. There, there's one in particular that stood out to me where sounds great. I was like, oh man, this is, this is probably the take of Anna Sandman or Wolf and man or whatever it was and pop rock like right after it was like pretty guy pretty good guys but obviously lars dropped a, f- a couple of cymbal hits hits there and then fumbled this and it's just like just raw like just laying it right the fuck out and yeah. it's like man uh the guy they, didn't, they, they didn't asked for perfection and the guy fucking pulled it right um yeah yeah because they they'd been or they'd had enough success at that point where they could have done whatever they wanted right definitely they, they could have gone into the studio for a few months yep. and made a pretty good album yep. it would have come out it would have done fine yep um they didn't have to do that and they sub- sub- subjected themselves to it right um you know really really on purpose another thing that's really interesting um you know, we'll we'll talk more about Bob Rock sure. and what he brought. Sure. Uh, because it, it's funny because my first really experience knowing anything about Bob Rock was watching some kind of monster. Same, same. We got into Bon Jovi recently, right? And uh, it was like just sort of mm-hmm. like, what is the album that Living on a Prayer is from? Where's like, you know, um, Wanted, Dead or Alive? What, mm-hmm. what are these songs? And they're all off yeah. one record, which is Slippery When Wet. And right. Bob Rock was like the engineer slash mixer for that. I don't know if that means some other guy was really leading the produ- production of it or whatever, but that is a classic, classic record. And we, before even knowing any of this and me even realizing who Bob Rock was again, after watching some kind of monsters last week, obviously got an earful of him mm-hmm. all of the time or whatever. We yeah. came to this independent conclusion, you know, amongst ourselves a couple of years ago of like, Dude, like Metallica sounds just like Bon Jovi now. Like, how can you like Metallica and shit on Bon Jovi? And the answer is Bob Rock. I mean, that's that's yeah. it. That's his sound. That's his yeah. Something he well, brings and, to and, it. Well, and 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 similar attitudes. I mean, John Bon Jovi's very much a perfectionist. He, he's much like Hetfield. Okay. Like he he's got to get it right. He's got to get it exactly right. Interesting. And, okay. Um, 
you know, really the driving force behind that band and, and making sure everything gets done at the absolute top quality that it can okay. get done. Okay. So, uh, not, not surprising. Um, right. Yeah. One thing that, that happened here that, that, I mean, Bob Rock certainly, uh, you know, helped facilitate was Hetfield wanted to learn how to sing and Hetfield had heard, you know, the Chris Isaac song, foolish game. I don't. I'm sure um, I would recognize it. You know that you, you, you'd you recognize it. It's kind of a soaring, uh, kind of a soft, but really soaring uh, voice. And Hetfield wanted to learn how to do that. And so okay. when you hear things like Nothing Else Matters, things like The Unforgiven, um, he worked with like a voice coach to learn really how to actually sing for real. Because he okay. said he'd, he'd always just kind of screamed. Like that's all he'd ever done in these songs. Yeah, that makes sense because the black album. You, you hear a big know, difference. Like, what about like fade to black? That's kind of a chiller one, and that. I don't. Know, yeah, I mean, there's I guess a if you think about, if yeah, you think about like fade to black that. compared to nothing else matters, and like how he sounds on it, that's definitely true. You mm-hmm. know, I, yeah, there's yeah. some similarities. Right, but, but I mean, like uh, in terms he, of his singing he, ability, it's definitely a level up. If I if I compare those two in, in particular, I'm thinking in my brain, I'm like, yeah. Fade to Black definitely sounds like something that I could see one of my friends singing it at that level, you know, and nothing else yeah. matters is, is a pro song in terms of the vocals. So I want to talk real quickly because we see some of this maybe in the movie in, in, a, in a, a year and a half in the life of. Um, one thing I've seen um, on, on a lot of these videos is it's, it looks like what they do is it all starts with a riff. Like they get in the studio and they, they find a riff. Right, and then they build a song around that. Okay, and then James builds lyrics on top of that. Okay, um, and they said "Inner Sandman" was the first riff that they built for this album. Okay, and it was "Inner Sandman." It was they they built the song around it, um, but it was <laughs> James had written the lyrics about actual like crib death, like <laughs> babies dying in their crib. Right, and Bob Great. Bob Rock Bob Rock. <laughs> was like no james does it have to be that literal and bob rock said he wasn't thinking about the radio he was thinking about just is this really as good as this song can be right and man i can't imagine great example, super great example oh man yeah God. great example of a guy pushing them in a place that fleming mcmetal probably didn't right um to say let's let's change this to make it more accessible Right, like let's make it to where people can listen to it, right. and um, and not, what, what, one thing he did. I, I'm going to bring Jessica Simpson to this conversation. <laughs> um, Jessica Simpson, of course, your your hero, Billy Corgan's former girlfriend, um, <laughs> which is really he, more more of it's sort of like the Lars Ulrich Netherlands thing. It's more of an indictment of her than him. It's it's, it's oh, a yeah. slag against her, but yeah, okay, go on. No, I, but she, you know, back way back in the day when she had that reality show and there's a, a scene where she's recording and she's, she's singing a song and she's doing it really, you know, you know, kind of singing that white girl blues, you know, where she's just <laughs> all over the place, like, uh, you know, she's just, yeah. just, you know, doing, doing the thing. And, okay. um, and the producer's telling her like, maybe not so much of that, like maybe slow that down a little bit sure. uh, because kids are going to hear this and they might want to sing along with you and they right. can't do that when you're doing this and she's like pissed she's like so i'm not i'm supposed to sing it like not as good as i can right and the producer's like that's not the point 
The point right. isn't to do as much as you possibly can on every exactly. song. And I think Bob Rock was that, so that's really the pro great. move, right? The the yes. the you know up until a certain point, the the apprentice is trying to show that he's the master and stuff. And then once you get to that point, it's it's really picking. You know, it, it's especially with music, it becomes about the the space between. The silence, you know, the yeah. sparseness and stuff, or whatever, um, and and, right. and making room to fit other things in and stuff. Yeah, that's uh, mm-hmm. you can really hear that. That's true because there is something yeah. t- fundamentally different about both that one and Load. Like I feel like Load is like it's just a masterful record, man. I, it, it's it's eighty minutes mm-hmm. long, but dude, if you can spare the time, it is a fan. It is fulfilling. And and so is the Black Album. Black Album's not my favorite personally, but but it it is. It's a classic rock record where like, you know, I've got nieces and nephews. You got some kids that are in their teens and whatnot. Like one of those people comes to us and says, Hey, where's the Led Zeppelin four of your generation? You know, or whatever. Yeah. I, I I Black Album's up there. I don't know about load, but Black is like the generic one to be like, Yeah, this is this is one of them for sure. You know, so um, I have I have plenty more to say about the black album, but I want to sure. hear some um, I want to hear some 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 tidbits from the movie from a year and a half in the life from these sure. recording sessions because I have not seen that in a very long time. Right, um, and I remember I remember some of the tidbits. I remember them working with Kirk on guitar solos and it right. seeming like a struggle. Like he's not great at that. He's not great at working it out in the studio. It looked like. right. Um, and we talked about that on a previous album where he had actually worked uh, with someone on trying to get better in the studio with Joe Satriani. Um, but it looked like maybe that maybe that's not his strength. Yeah, um, I don't know. And working, I didn't know because the problem is I can't compare and contrast with anything before that. And obviously, some kind of monster mm-hmm. is literally like two decades later, right, or whatever. So at this no, point, it's they ten are, years. Like it's it, a decade. It's, uh, what? It's a decade later. Oh, you're right. One decade. Some yeah, kind of monster. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like a, yeah. But yeah, but it, it, in the because I did watch some kind of monster this weekend, and one of the main things they keep mm-hmm. throwing at each other is that sounds stock, dude. In other words, generic. Oh it yeah, sounds yeah, generic yeah. or whatever. And they are like they are. There's masters like playing around with the guitar and whatever. There's like, yeah, let's throw this down. Now nah, that sounds like something we did before, you know, or whatever or something. Oh, um, right. And it just seems like like effortless. And mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Like that's the thing is when Bob's pushing them in this show, and Kirk's a good example. I'm like, that sounds pretty good. And then like you realize this actually is supposed to be the one for Unforgiven. You're like, no, no, what they got was way fucking better than this or whatever. Yeah. And then yeah. you start watching, you start watching the scene unfolding. Like, oh, there you go. He is pushing mm-hmm. this dude and being like, nope. Let's start over. I need you to like go noodle yeah. around some more and figure something out because this is not it. He's like, don't. He's basically right. like, don't waste my time recording this. You know, um, this yeah. particular take on it. But I, I don't know. I'm not sure how strong of a guitarist he is. But it was the same thing with Newstead. Where you know, one thing I got was, a, you know, I was talking to Jane about this, and it's kind of an interesting, maybe philosophical thing of. Hetfield seems like he's going first, and it seems like then they do Lars, and then they do Kirk, and then they do Newstead for whatever reason. That's the order it kind of, at least the documentary goes. And all of them, except for Hetfield, are bitching. 
Now, is it the John Bo yeah. Jovi thing where Hetfield wants perfection and will work for it? Or is Hetfield also pissed off about being told he's not good enough, so to speak, over and over and over? And these other guys are just kind of venting like little crybabies as they go. Meanwhile, Hetfield becomes the guy or is the guy with the alcoholism problem where he winds up going to rehab and like really trying to get his life together multiple times later in time, mm-hmm. life and it, it mm-hmm. sparked this conversation of like the um i guess bottling up the emotion you know versus the guys that just kind of like they, they whine but they're maybe not taking that home out of the studio with them or something because hetfield just know. seemed like a complete professional man and he is getting pushed yeah just as hard as them and and bob rock is doing the exact same thing and in particular but that's what made it a little bit like jarring when you start seeing Lars, like man Lars is a baby and then you see kirk and you're like man kirk is a ba-. you're like wait a minute and mm-hmm. then Newstead also, and then and Bob's like, no, it's just ain't it. This ain't it. That's not it. That's not it. And you see him do the same thing with the vocals at the end and with Hetfield at the beginning with his main, like, his main rhythm guitar and stuff. And Hetfield's like, you're right. Let's do it. You know, oh, you're right. Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. Let's do it. Uh, I don't yeah. know. It made me appreciate sort of like it seemed like a little bit of a maturity, but I don't know. He's also the front man of the band. Maybe he gets, you know, all the girls or something has like has the confidence built up that he's good enough to do this but it's a very interesting sort of push and pull um i I will say this i think it was from the wiki and not really the uh the documentary but the wiki on the black album says that bob rock thought the record still didn't come out as good as it could be and that he would never work with metallica again like he hated the process of working with them (laughs) uh which i I wonder if that does speak to the professionalism because like yeah there's a bunch of it's the same thing as some kind of monster where those guys were like in their late 40s early 50s or some kind of shit when that thing went on and they still are bitching at bob rock the producer for the record and just like acting like they're his dad like he's their dad or something where it's like dude we're professional people you guys are multi-million like multi 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 million record sales people um by the time they even get to this black album session and they are just crying all the time just babies about i'm better than this that was pretty good i thought that was good bob come on that's it that's the take and they're like he's like i mean it can't be you know uh it was very, very interesting. Yeah. Cause I, but at the same time, they were very young, man. They were, you know, I guess they're still whatever, you know, eight or nine years into their career at that point. So maybe they're in their late 20s or something. But they, mm-hmm. just babies, man. They, they were... It, it, they, they seem like twenty six year olds. That's that's what they seemed like. Um, yeah. Well, and you but you have to. I, I I don't I don't think I fault them for for bitching about it because from their standpoint they've had all this success right. pretty much on their own. Right. Um. And and I think in that at that level you have to have some ego about you where right. Yeah, you think it's right. Of course it's fucking good. I did it. You know. <laughs> right. Of course it's good. I, right. I, I think you have to have some of that. And um. And so when you have a producer that you've never worked with. Uh, sitting there telling you no, you can actually do it better. Right, um, and I, 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 that's not surprising that there would be friction, but it's not surprising that they would come back to him after seeing how well it worked. Yeah, I mean the record and, at this point has that, sold something like sixteen or eighteen million records. It is the twenty fifth most selling record in the United States ever. ever. I mean, yeah, that's that's hard to you know, hard to argue with. Yeah. No, no matter how much they didn't like the process or something, you know. Yeah. So a couple other things that I thought were were interesting about 
um, kind of the making of it. One was uh, Nothing Else Matters. This is in the movie where James like pretty much wrote it by himself. And it was that was what he was he was really worried about that song okay. and how it would be received by the fans. Because right. Because it was like that was their first love song. Like that was right. the song he wrote for his girlfriend at the time or whatever. Right. Um, that was, um, you know, that was something that he wrote it. Uh, I think Lars heard it and Lars was like, yeah, that needs to be on the album. That's a great song. Right. Um, Kirk did not do any of the guitar parts on that. That is 100% Hetfield. Interesting. Um, and there's a funny scene in a, a Year and a Half in the Life where Kirk is in his hotel room trying to learn the song because they want to play it the next night. And he doesn't know it because <laughs> he, do, he didn't do it. He didn't record it. He didn't write it. Right. And he's sitting there in his hotel room trying to learn it. Um, so that so that they can play it live because uh, he didn't have anything to do with the recording of it. Crazy. Um, there, but but they played it. They had a listening party at Madison Square Garden. Um, I don't know if this was a fan club thing or what, but they had a listening party at Madison Square Garden, and James and Lars both apparently were really nervous backstage um, waiting for that song to play, and they did, and it was really well received. Interesting. But he thought there would be a, he thought there might be a revolt at that song because uh, it's <laughs> which is slow. interesting because I mean like. You know, one of the things I noticed when I was listening to the Black Album the other night was that I've always thought of, I guess it's because of Nothing Else Matters, that I've thought of The Unforgiven as in the same vein. And it's that The Unforgiven mm-hmm. starts kind of acoustically like that, but it does like almost mm-hmm. immediately, especially when he starts the, you know, the, the lyrics, I can't remember off the top of my head, New Blood mm-hmm. Joins This Earth mm-hmm. or whatever. It yeah. immediately like wall of distortion wall of big guitars and whatever and nothing mm-hmm. else matters really doesn't and fade to black also fade to black very similar to nothing else matters but eventually it does it kicks up to like this is if if you're against the love ballad or the like soft like you know sweet thing just wait it's going to kick in this huge whatever that makes you a man again and you know your testosterone yeah, and, and is justified and nothing else matters definitely doesn't do that which is really i mean it's a great fantastic fucking song right um but, there's a guitar solo but it's really short i mean it's literally a few seconds long right. um and then it, it right. ends as soon as it started um so right. you had that you had um there's a real big heavy sound to it and right. one reason for that is they wanted to they always tuned their instruments down a little bit sure and they thought they had tuned them basically as down as you really could and bob rock pointed out that some of the other i don't remember if it was bon jovi i think it was dr feelgood um okay. that bob rock was like hey that deep sound that deep driving and dr feelgood uh-huh. they tuned it down to down to d now i'm not a guitar expert um, I'm, I'm aware of alternate tunings and right. like I tune mine to open G and I find it really easy to play. Um, right. but, uh, tuning it down to D is like, I, I guess you call it drop D tuning. Um, right. that's where you yep. get that on, on sad, but true. Like he, he showed him how to do that. They'd never okay. tuned it that low before, but that's why you get that deep, heavy, heavy sound. Right. Uh, that became the signature songs. 90s sound. I'm not sure if he's the one that invented it or, or whatever, right? Or Dr. Feelgood or whatever, but that was like, that was the, the same, like the pumpkins use that all of the time. I'm pretty sure Pearl Jam, I definitely like Green Day and all those guys, Bush. It's it, it, once you, once you hear it, once you know of it, you're like, oh, these guys are using that for sure. That's interesting that they didn't know of yeah. that. I would now that makes me want to go back and listen to Injustice for All or whatever, Master of Puppets versus the Black Album versus Sad but True in particular, because 
I don't feel like the sound changed too much. To me, load definitely. Like they started doing some more blues and you know and whatnot and more classic sort mm-hmm. of rock sounds. But like, yeah. I man, when I listen to the old records and listen up through Black, I recognize that Black is a big departure and has like some slowness to it, some space to it, and uh, production values over the top, right? Even though it's more accessible, yeah. uh, I guess melody wise and whatnot, it. It sounds the same to me. Like it sounds like Metallica. Yeah. You know, I... it 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 does sonically. There's a similarity for sure, right? Um, but there's some parts that I I read that they um, one thing that they did was in in James learning how to sing. There are parts like on the Unforgiven where it sounds like his voice is doubled, and yeah. it's not like it's what? just him singing. He just learned how to sing. Interesting. And it ended up sounding like something he never could really sound like before. Um, Interesting. So I thought that was that was really, really interesting. I mean, this is, man, this is the Beatles getting off the road and going into the studio and learning all the cool things you can do in a studio. And right. Not to compare them with the Beatles, but I just did. Um, <laughs> they, that, that was, it was, it, it, it definitely, um, you know, it definitely opened up a new world for them that I don't, again, their previous producer, I think is just, there's a formula. There's, this is how we do metal. And right. this was a whole new world because uh, they didn't want to be in that box anymore. Um, right. Another funny thing, not funny, but uh, so I guess Lars and Jason and Kirk were all going through divorces during this album. <laughs> right. I saw that. Right. Going it's just like, it's just a footnote the in the Wikipedia about it. But I was like, what? Yeah. I, no, I read I more about it. So Kirk, I didn't Kirk listen, talked about I, I was, Kirk you know, I was in the middle of doing some work while I was listening to this, uh, the year and a half in the life of thing. Uh, so th- there might be some stuff in there that I missed that was kind of about that, but I thought that was pretty big. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in the Wikipedia yeah. mentioned, like Kirk mentioned, like that was going on. So we were trying to pour some of the, you know, energy from that into the record. It, it definitely sounds right. like a really dark record, I would say. Very, uh, but, I, but I, I can't tell if that's just like his lyrics, right? His lyrics seem very introspective, less, and I think that Lars, there was uh, there was definitely something in there, or maybe it was on the Load uh, little documentary I watched recently that was like, Lars was like, yeah, we were like pretty political and pretty generically themed, and over time, you know, uh, you know, Hetfield got tired of that, and we got tired of that in general, and became more about like yeah. this is what our life is like, you know, or whatever. Um, obviously, without a lot of the, you know, um, what do you call it? rock star song, song. Although, like, I mean, there is a what is it? Is it Wolf and Man? Or one of them is about being yeah. on the road, you know, or what's not. Well, basically. wherever, wherever, wherever I may roam. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's right. the yeah. big road song. Yeah. Um, yeah, you you have, but it, 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 that's it, it's an interesting study in like it. Once a band has achieved a lot of success and made sure. a whole lot of money, and they've made that money by acting and sounding really angry, how do they stay right. really angry? And right. The answer right. is you just become angry over different stuff. Um, you know, they're, they're spoken they're as a true professional who's made it in life. Yes, and... <laughs> yes. You just you stay angry at different stuff now. It's, it's taxes now. You're angry at. at the taxes and the IRA, you know, and and the the yard the yard the, won't the yield grow. rates on annuities out here. Yeah, I, I, you know, the rain. I can't get New Balance shoes it's, cost more than they ever have before. That's one thing that's really been pissing me off. Ever. 
it's a problem. <laughs> um, so, you know, but they, but yeah, you, you start making it more about your life because some of their lyrics in the 80s were, man, they were crazy. Well, not crazy, but they were like really, yeah, deeply political, um, some really progressive stuff. And right. you saw most of that kind of go away. In fact, there's a, um, a lot of people, one criticism I saw was the, the song Don't Tread On Me. Um, okay. If you read the Rolling Stone review of this album when it came out, that was their one criticism is, I guess it was kind of a pro-military, pro-war song. Um, okay. You know, kind of caught up in the whole Gulf War thing. Right. And they yeah, were they, like, this that was not Metallica. Like, this is so not Metallica. Right, exactly. Yeah, that was definitely one thing I do remember is that they had the TV going and it was during the middle of the war. Um mm-hmm. I'm looking yeah. at the lyrics real quick. So yeah, I, 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 I got to be honest. Like it was probably the first time I've listened to the Black album all the way through in probably more than a decade. And it's not like that. I'll like just choose Inner Sandman, but man, if you make it all the way through Inner Sandman, Sad but True, Unforgiven, uh, Wherever May I May Roam, you get all the way to Nothing Else Matters. I'm like, I'm done after that. Like I, for whatever reason, you know, no. no no dish against yeah. some of the later songs. Like I think Wolf and Man is later and stuff. I'm just like, that's that's it, man. That's that's about as much as I can take. And it's also extremely satisfying. Like it's Oh sure. The, the, like top to bottom, all of that. And, and the rest of it's satisfying too, but like I am I, I'm good after nothing else matters. And I think that maybe maybe that's like a commentary on my personal style of like how I like a heavy record to end. Is something that's like you know gives you a little bit of a break or something, but um, this is one like yeah, right. don't tread on me is one I don't even know. Um, don't tread on me, I said. Don't tread on me. Liberty or death, what we pro so proudly hail. Once you provoke her, rattling of her tail. There you go. <laughs> that's no, that's Toby. So, oh yeah, yeah. So be it. Um, Threaten no more to secure peace is to prepare for war. Yeah, there you go. That's pretty pro war. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's so be a it, settle the score. Is, Touch me again for the words that you'll hear evermore. Don't tread on me. Okay, I can definitely hear this in my head as soon as I see the so be it or whatever. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting that they got some flack is, for it because it, it's a true fucking statement there to like you, you know, war makes peace, right? But I don't know how much flack they got, and yeah. I, I think there's uh, I think they would have gotten a lot more flack today. I don't think there's a, in a million years would they write that or perform that today. Right, sure. Um, yeah, but you know, back then I think it was a lot uh, more PC to be pro war than it sure. is now. That's true. And, yeah, that's a good probably, point. Especially in the, the middle Gulf of the war was not. Thing. Yeah, the Gulf War was not terribly controversial in 1991. Like, right, I think pretty much everybody was on board with it. Um, right, so. Anyway, you you had you had uh, you know you had that. Uh, on, on, uh, funny thing about nothing else matters. Also, was um, their strings on it, and right. uh, for the strings, they recorded the song. They sent it to Michael Kamen, the producer. Okay. And uh, Michael Kamen puts the spring the the strings on it, and sends it back to them. And he said, it, "It's like that's what happens when you work with a rock band. Like you do it, and you never hear from them again." And like, okay. he didn't even know if they'd used it until he heard it on the record. And then he was like, oh, well, I guess they used it. I guess they liked it. Um, <laughs> and they said they, they sent it. They finally sent him a note back and they were like, um, really loved it. Uh, you know, we should work together on like a, a live show or something one day. And he said, that's that's what um, got talks going on the S&M shows that they did later in the 90s. 
Oh, interesting. Um, with the so did, did he do that? Orchestra. Did he do the symphony pairing yeah. stuff? Yes, oh, he did. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. He looks like yeah, he's... Yeah, he did uh, that. He did the S&M stuff. Yeah, for people who don't know, um, it looks like he's a composer. Is that right? It looks like film scores? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's what he does, yeah. Okay, cool. Highlander, uh, Brazil, Lethal Weapon, uh, Die Hard, a lot of big fucking movies. Okay, interesting. Um, okay, so they, they they record the album, and I there's so much to say about it. Um, you know, obviously, we've established pop rock played a huge part in transforming right. the, right. the the sound. I, I don't I don't think it's transforming. I think it's focusing the sound. Right, um, and I, and I, I mean, really I saw some that. of that in the documentary, a little bit of that, right? Where it's like he's guiding them and been like, like, mentioned the inner salmon thing. That's a good example. I saw some things that were kind of like that, where he was like, there's one part where he literally called James out for the regular, for the, you know, classic, yeah, thing. He's like, don't say yeah. Like, let's just try mm-hmm. once to not say yeah. He's like, <laughs> and he mocks him and he's like, why don't you just do like woman, you know, or whatever, some kind of like doors thing, you know, <laughs> or something stupid. But I, I saw like a little bit of that, but I I will say this. I think that it seemed, it really did not seem like he was, I mean, I I guess you're right. I mean, I guess he obviously had an effect on the songs and whatnot, but it didn't seem like, for example, he was handholding the band. It seemed much more like he's just pushing them relentlessly and saying, no, we can, we can get a better take than that. We can get a better take. You can do it again. You can da da da. And he would like, I, I guess to some degree, he'd be like, hey, why not in this little part here, switch up to the C before you'd hit the E, you know, or whatever, right? Um, yeah. But but it wasn't, it, I, I hate, the thing I hate is like, you get a brand new band in particular, and they, they come out of nowhere, and they're amazing, and you're like, well, that's the producer who made Nevermind, right? Or that's the producer who, mm-hmm. you know, did, put together Led Zeppelin Four or something, or whatever, right? They just, they're right in on that guy's yeah. expertise. This seems like, really like a joining of, you know, uh, a marriage of really professional people from both sides, just some of them are immature, I would say, in terms of their egos, fragile egos. Well, they're, yeah, they're, they're 20, 26 year old millionaires. Right. Um, who, who among us would have handled right. that, uh, well, <laughs> that I can kind say, of fame I, and money? I, I mean, I don't think we're moving on to load yet, but I can say it looks like Lars didn't very well, sort of. There, there was this great Lars, like, do, or this documentary about the load sessions, and there's a part I was mentioning to you on text earlier where they're hanging out at Lars's mm-hmm. house, and it's just a generic, like, McMansion, not even mansion, like, just a generic, like, really shitty stove like he, the guy has a house yeah. obviously it's la it's probably at that point a hundred thousand dollar house or something or whatever that now would be two million for just this shitty piece of crap house but it's just like right. a regular house like a, you know it's a decent one the living room's big enough he probably had a big screen tv in there for the guys to you know watch the football game or something but that's what it looks like and it's not it's not the lair you know what I mean? It, which is funny well, because because in particular they start in the quote unquote dungeon, which is a studio in this house, mm-hmm. which also is just a big, you know, I don't know, thirty foot long by twelve foot room or something. It is not. Yeah, it's not excess like this guy's got you know uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. It's like a guy who like honestly fairly sensible it looked like you know the awful like 90s granite counters like just like everybody else like you can see him starting to put farm style 
bullshit in there in 2001 yeah you know, or whatever anyway yeah no no 1996 um right 95 right that, 95. That, that time frame yeah. so i so okay so um the I, I was curious what made it what what made the anticipation for this so huge sure um because i mean injustice for all was big but it wasn't like massive massive big i mean it was well but was thought it, of it was nominated for a, was it master of puppets massive big isn't that what yeah it was, it was no and they it, were well master master of puppets was big but again were any of these so big that people were like lining up at record stores the night the record came out to go buy it yeah, and maybe it was know. just accumulation i think i think part of it is inner sandman was released as a single in june of that year before the um, record the album yeah the album came out in august and so i think Inner oh, Sandman man. um was pretty big right away there it is um, yeah and two I think months that, too of anticipation yeah. like now you can't do that now you got to tell them the album's out the day of because it's going to get leaked otherwise or whatever yeah man, exactly. i remember that i remember some of those albums where you'd have a single for at least a few weeks before that's crazy man that's right. a that's that's the momentum yeah. build mm-hmm and, and so I mean that's a, that's a classic song, right? I mean, I was talking to you the other night about how like uh, which one did I say was Stairway? Did I say did I say Unforgiven? Yeah, I, I don't know, but like yeah, yeah. Inner Sandman you said, you said is definitely one of those. Inner Sandman is I don't know Immigrant Song or something. It is fucking huge, right? Um, well, Inner Sandman, I would call Inner Sandman their their Stairway. I mean, that's their to right. me. If you had to boil Metallica down to one song, Absolutely. I don't know if it's their best song, but Absolutely. I think if you had to just if someone who doesn't know Metallica said, "What's the first song I should listen to?" I right. think Inner Sandman is probably your entry. Into, I agree. Into the band. I agree. Um, so you had that come out. You had massive anticipation. It sold like 600,000 copies in the first week. Um, I read, um, I've mentioned this article before, but I think it was Stephen Hyden wrote for Uproxx um, about the five albums that came out in 1991 Blood Sugar, Sex Magic, User Illusion 1 and 2, 10, um, Metallica, and. I don't remember the last one. Never but, mind. Uh, you know, oh, never, never mind. mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I forgot about this little album called Never Mind. But they, you know, he ranked them. He ranked them in terms of like uh, anticipation. And Metallica was number two. Use, use your illusion. Yeah, uh, was was number one because um, he said by that time, you know. Uh, whenever he was born, he said, you know, Appetite came out in 87. So he'd literally been waiting like one third of his life for a new Guns N' Roses album. Interesting. Um, you know, Metallica had been putting out albums more frequently. So uh, User Illusion was much more hotly anticipated, but they both sold about the same right out of the gate. Huh. Um, and he said just cultural, you know, penetration, uh, Metallica was number one. He said that's the one that you're most likely to still hear and any random place on any random day you know inner sandman you're still you're still gonna hear it out and about yeah you'll still hear never mind but um uh inner sandman inner sandman you're you're that's the one that you're you're most likely to hear like you're right. of course never mind is huge and i think never mind was the one that he ranked as like in the end like the most important of all of those and of course sure. i think it gets bonus points because kurt died but um right. you know metallica was the you know in the end probably the one that has become the most culturally um you know i guess relevant uh, yeah i mean through the ish and i, I, and I, I think know. that's it, i think that's I, I i think it might depend on your flavor of 
what the 90s was because i mean never mind is like un undeniably the grunge mm-hmm. album the everything Soundgarden, stone tool pilots everything any of those people who are not really the heavy rock guys but are still the alt rock guys it, uh, never mind overshadows all of it no matter what you like no matter yeah. what the, how good the records were or whatever now i feel like metallica stand separate and i feel like for example acting baby i think came out in 90 or 91 as well too and that's a really really fantastic record but you don't compare u2 to nirvana right so it's no you know i I agree but i do do see the comparison of like guns and roses and uh metallica which and in particular i'm looking at the sales charts man each each of the use your illusion records sold seven million in the states alone just on anticipation, yeah. probably. That's insane. I've heard those records, and they're not worth, in my personal opinion, no. not worth selling 20 million combined copies. That's... No. Good good example of what should have been just one album. Yeah, uh, definitely. Narrow it down to the top 10 songs. It, and man, it would, have been a fucking, it would have been a classic album, too. Like It, it would have been another appetite. It would have been... Yeah. A, yeah, yeah. It would have been another appetite for destruction, and we'll, yep. we'll talk about this with Load and Reload, the same concept, sure. but... yeah. Um, I, when, when it, when it came out, I, you know, the thing, the thing that's really interesting to me, and I don't know how much of this you watched, but the, the year and a half of the life that documents the tour. Right. That came out. And that, that, that is where I kind of trail, uh, that's where I kind of trailed off a little. Cause it was like, I, maybe it was making the point of how awful touring is. Cause it kept playing like almost full versions of Inner Sandman over yeah for a different place yeah i, I like, think man. yeah there's certainly there's a merit to that i think that's a good um reminder that it's not the same for the fan as it is for the band yeah yeah there's a there's a so, great i think i've mentioned this before but like i think that the for that point in particular there's a great documentary for radiohead called meeting people is easy there was like some kind of you know it's it's almost a mind fuck kind of um documentary that happened during the okay computer mm-hmm. tour and it's just like yeah. it has these montages of the guys getting interviewed by complete, you know, idiots from all across Europe or whatever that are all asking the exact same question back to back to back to back to back to back. They are they have a little ticker when they show live show stuff, and they only they don't even show I think a complete song, but they show these little snippets, and it'll be show number one, show number twenty one, <laughs> and they get to like show number yeah. two hundred and twenty. So this is a band that is peaking in their career no question everything after radiohead that they did is also big and all this great stuff and whatever but this is like the pinnacle of their lives and they are like running around still selling 35 dollars tickets maybe it's ten thousand people maybe it's fifty thousand people but like the best couple of years of their lives in terms of uh I don't know, like the like living in it or whatever, and they're just in. No matter what kind of a bus you you want, you think it is or whatever, they're living in a bunk mm-hmm. bed in a bus, driving around Europe, then the United States, then Asia. Like, yeah, fucking brutal, man. Uh, Rockstar is not a cool thing. Well, it can be, um, and and I think Metallica certainly lived it up on that tour, sure. and the documentary does not really shy away from that. That's true. Um, it they have a so the stage setup for these shows was like the stage was kind of in the middle, um, so there was not like a big you know backdrop or anything. Right. You know the the fans were all around them, and so what you had was a a um, you had this little cave underneath the stage where I think some of the sound people were and stuff. I remember this. Um, I saw this part. A, yeah, go ahead, dude. There's a scene. There's a scene where the guy is under the stage and he has like Polaroids of all these girls and he's like, yeah. 
I had this one on the last uh, show, and I had this one and her mom, and then I had. I mean, right? He he's like, yeah, she gave me a blowjob for letting her backstage, and like right. this dude is just like, and this man, guy is like, you he cannot, is a you cannot do that dude. today. Let's be clear, this was no, not, this is you your can, average roadie. It is really gross looking dude, and he's like, yeah, they come down here and they're like, we want to meet the man. And he's like, well, it's gonna cost you, you know. It's it's the road, it's rock and roll, it's the rules. It's like what? Yes, dude. Yeah, dude. There, this is where this is where I heard. Um, I don't know if it's in the movie. I don't know where I heard this, but like they would basically tell the you know that guy or whoever else like we need like four girls in the shower waiting for us after the show. What the fuck? And, <laughs> which I always wonder. Okay, I mean, maybe I think maybe, maybe they I can think get that, past the bunk bed. Twenty six years old. Man, I, I'm telling you. I think I think that goes on all the time. Yeah. I think that still happens to this day. Right. I mean, I think bands do that still. I I, I mean, sir, of course they do. Sure. Um, uh, but I but I do think um, I, it made me wonder. I always laugh because now they're like almost sixty, right? You know, and they're touring. They've all got families and right. all that stuff now, and they're pretty mellow these days. But I wonder if every now and then they just look at each other before a show and they're like, "Let's line up the shower girls tonight. Like, let's just do it for old times' sake." Like, let's, <laughs> I wonder if just every now and then, you know, they're in like Australia or something. They're like, let's do it tonight. Let's do it. <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> now they got kids I the hope, same age as the quote unquote shower lineup. Man, That's I hope that weird. happens. I hope it happens. I hope it happens so bad. Oh I, I desperately God. want to know that this still happens. Every, that, that and the number one, the, the number one candidate kiss category. I mean, that's how do you become a legend otherwise, right? In rock the number rock. one candidate. The number one candidate to still be doing that is Lars, 100%. Oh, like, man. he's absolutely the guy who would still be doing that. Right. Um, I don't know if it's happening or not, but it, uh, I, I always laugh when <laughs> I think funny. about whether or not, just for old times. Okay, so like, speaking of that, up, that did remind me of one thing that uh, I was laughing at in this video. All right, James Hetfield sitting there. I'm pretty sure it was Inner Sandman. He's got, like, one of those mm-hmm. dorky orchestra music stands with, like, you know, basically his lyrics written mm-hmm. on it. Okay, eight and a half by 11 sheet handwriting is awful i don't know how he's reading it the as mm-hmm. you know those music stands can hold two pieces of paper you know usually just a book you kind of flip the yeah, sheet yeah, music yeah. to the next one on the right hand is a torn out page of a playboy that's just some completely naked blonde okay <laughs> yes these guys also in the studio are just randomly like there's scenes of like kirk or somebody i can't remember who had it in their hands first but then jason newstead just taking this porno mag out of the other guy's hand while they're in the middle of recording the black album and being like oh yeah man look at her oh man did you see this one oh man that reminds me and you're like I, yes I, I, I guess i'm not a rock star i don't get the dude's partaking of porn like with their brothers thing i i it's fucking weird I think dude it, <laughs> yeah but like i think if you if you grew up in a band like these guys i mean literally they grew up in a band like, that's they true. stopped maturing at age 19 right right you know yeah they did i mean they 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 did they, they stopped growing up at that point right. and so i think if you if you grow up and you go through your 20s in that environment, like, man, that's just your life. That's just the life you live. And it's probably a life many of us would have lived if given the chance at that age. And they're, they're not all like that. Not every band is like that. I, right. I heard a uh, someone ask um, 
there was a director who was directing the the Tom Petty biography. Sure. And he went to a Petty Petty show. Okay. And uh, he was not a rock and roll guy at all. The director wasn't. Okay. And um, and he asked um, someone, some stagehand, like, so, like, this is a typical crowd, and you know, it's a, an arena, it's full, and it's you know, it's it's full of you know women who are you know older. Tom Petty, you know. Sure. And and he goes so. The director goes, so you think like a lot of these women, like they want to have sex with Tom even today? Because at that point, Tom is like 60. Sure. And, and the stage hand is like, well, yeah, but I think Tom's kind of past that stage in his life. But in my mind, I hear that story and I'm like, boy, I bet there was a time. When you know you don't think of like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, right? Exactly, kind of a band, but you they were. This guy recently they all, they Jason all were. Isabel, dude, right? And I know for a fact, like I don't know about for a fact, but I know for a fact that like the Pumpkins, for example, are like total dweebs, right? I, I just cannot see like I, I just feel like this is one of those things that even if they did get a hooker backstage, not not the drummer, the drummer ran around with heroin, obviously very, mm-hmm. very publicly and whatnot. Uh, that all came out and whatnot. But like these are guys mm-hmm. who, you know, at worst were smoking pot, but most of the time like maybe doing LSD and tripping out like so freaking intellectual, left-brained mm-hmm. or whatever, just dorks. It's just hard to imagine. Right, and no, I definitely, I, I guarantee you there wasn't fucking porno mags hanging out in the studio. Maybe because of the effect that there's a there's a chick in there who's a pretty much a hard ass anyway. But like, it is it's a different world, man. Versus like, yeah, I've mm-hmm. definitely seen the Trent Reznor Marilyn Manson tour stuff that they did like on after uh, after um, sorry Downward Spiral or whatever, mm-hmm. and they're they're having some fun, and I'm I am sure. There's a bunch of groupies and all that kind of stuff going on there. But, like, there are some, like, yeah, Tom Petty is a good example, man. We're like, really? Like, oh, yeah. Here's another one. Like, okay, I know that the Bono we know is like way past the 19 year old Bono or whatever it was mm-hmm. for those first records. But can you imagine like Bono or The Edge? Like, I, I for some reason, there's, there's like a, a sainthood like block in my brain that, like, surely not, you know? But I mean, no, no, uh, there it's at, it absolutely happens. Right. It happens more. Um, uh, I'll give you the last example, uh, and that's um, that is uh, Roger Daltrey of the Who. Sure. And oh, he come gave, on. He this gave is an, not an he example. Gave an, this is like he gave an, well, no, 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 no. We're talking 2019. Um, what? <laughs> where he was he was giving an interview, um, and he was talking about how he was giving an interview like in Dallas. Um, okay. He was at the hotel in Dallas, and he was talking about he and how you know Pete Townsend uh, didn't get married until much later in life, so he just kind of lived a different life than Roger did. And Roger was okay. like, "I got married in the '70s, and sure. I've always been faithful to my wife." And then he chuckles and he goes, <laughs> "You know, at home anyway." <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> and I'm like, so he says that very publicly in an interview, which tells me his she knows the deal. Like yeah, she knows right. when Roger right. goes on the road, Roger's going to do what Roger's going to do. And right. this man is like 75 years old. And Dude. I have no doubt. <laughs> there's no doubt. Yeah. But I mean, um, but there's, there's a, but there's, there's a sex appeal built, built into some of these, right? Like, like Pink Floyd's a good one too, right? I, I'm sure. But like in particular, I'm seeing Gilmore as more the guy mm-hmm. Right, who like if any of the groupies are going for him and whatnot, but I mean, I'm sure Roger Waters too. But like, come on, Roger Daltrey, 
Jimmy Page, Pete Townsend, right? You know, I'm I'm blanking right now for some stupid reason on Led Zeppelin singer. Uh, help me out. Oh, Robert Plant. Yeah, Robert Plant. Yeah, like, Robert come on, Plant. their entire persona was this, right? You know, Paul McCartney is another mm-hmm. one where it's like you know it from like all the documentaries and stuff, but it's just like. These these helpless little guys, you know, Ringo Starr. No way, of course not. And you're like, yeah, I... <laughs> but but no, yeah, no. Roger Dalton is uh, not, it uh, just, not surprising, it, right? It's, that's like saying that's that's it, borderline like saying to, like Guns and no. Roses or Motley Crue, and you're being like surprised. I mean, come on, that 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 those were the guys who like worshipped at the altar of the Who and wanted to be as uh, popular with the girls as the Who always will be, right? Um, yeah, I, I, anyway. I, I just when I see the document when I see the documentary, what strikes me is not that that's happening; it's sure. that it's on camera because there's no way you could right. have that roadie under the stage talking about that today. No, like, no fucking. There's way. no way right. in the world no. you could you could well, do so that today. That's like, what uh, that that's what the that's what the the porno mags in the studio to me felt like, and and I think that's why some kind of monster is such a like profound thing. Um, because it looked a lot like, and maybe they're living it, but it looked a lot like they were trying real hard to live it. And like in retrospect now, especially if a band was doing what they were doing now, no matter if they're 19 or 25 or whatever, you'd be like, you guys are so trying so fucking hard to be whatever you think metal is or something. It was just, it just, it just bleeds through as total cheese. But I mean, it's 30 years since then now, but Man, it was like so cringy. It was like, oh my god, those guys. I don't think they look back on this too bad, too often. But if they do, like, ah, oh, I don't think they think. I don't think they think. I don't think they think anything of it. I think that was so normal. Um, right. I think that was so incredibly normal for them that I don't think they think anything of it whatsoever. I think that's just, um, man, that's just the life of a of a very rich twenty six year old who has women throwing themselves at right. him all the time. Crazy. Um, I, I don't think they thought anything of it. I don't think they think anything of it today. I right. think that's... It's a, it's similar in the way I've heard Lars talk very casually about cocaine. Okay. Whereas, you, like, if you told me that you did cocaine once, I'd be like, whoa, what? Right. Um, and Lars is like, yeah, I quit cocaine a few years ago. And this was, like, two years ago right. that he said that. Right, <laughs> like, exactly. The dude, like, he, he just basically admitted, like, even as, like, a 50-year-old, he was still doing coke. And right. he admits it so casually. Man, suddenly his energy level that you always see makes complete sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I think that's, I think that's what's... You and I cannot comprehend this lifestyle yeah. um, right. at all. Right. Um, we, we never will be able to. <laughs> um, and, and but the, the movie, I thought the movie was interesting when you have for the a boat couple. House, the lake house on Lake Arlington. Are you sure mm-hmm. you're not going to like graduate into this? I mean, geez, I'm, I, my whole my whole life is is striving to graduate into it. <laughs> I, I just don't know if it'll ever happen. <laughs> okay. I, uh, my whole uh, my entire existence is built around trying to get to this point, but. But that, uh, but again, honest. that I'll damn honest. IRA and, and, and the taxes and, is really just not panning out. <laughs> so I, you know, there's another funny, real funny part of the documentary where uh, Jason Newstead is wrapping up sandwiches yes. after a show, yep. and I remember watching this. I mean, I literally I watched this movie. Uh, let's see, my son was not even a year old, so I watched this movie like 16 or 17 years ago. Okay. 
Um, and he's wrapping up sandwiches and Lars just giving him shit. Yes. Just like this guy, he's talking to the camera like this guy can order literally anything he wants back at the hotel. And he's worth millions. Yep. And Newstead's like, I got plans for those millions and it's not buying sandwiches. Yep. Yep. And, and I think he strikes me. I, I mean, since he left the band in 2003 or so, like, I don't think he's had any money. I think he was good with his money. I think he was able to leave the band probably. Oh, yeah. Uh, because he's been. Well, like, with these his records money and, and, still sell today. I mean, even, even you know, given oh, whatever yeah. the, 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 you know, iTunes and whatever, these guys are still making and making yeah. money or whatever. But I think that, you know, one thing that's interesting is you mentioned how they used to like basically pick on him and whatnot, you know, and like he never really mm-hmm. got the same shake as Cliff Burton did, which, I mean, makes sense to some degree because Cliff Burton, like they moved for this guy. This guy like leveled them up and they were trying to replace someone with not a lot of time. And they found this guy and he's good and he plays definitely way different. That was one thing is there's a signature mm-hmm. thing of uh, I think it might have been this documentary. It may have been one of the other ones I watched where um Newstead's talking about the way that he plays, where he plays this really deep, like banging, like he is like slamming yes. on those those strings. That sound is a very Newstead specific sound that is like the hey, it here's is. the bass coming in that happens a lot. You know, in Inner Sandman, it happens. It happens all over the Black Album, and it was interesting. He mentioned um, did the you know he, the reason the reason he plays like that is that he didn't have an amp when he was a kid. So to make the bass have sound, he used to slam it like that, like really fucking hard or whatever. And so that's how he yeah. got this style where he plays like he plays like he is angry. Like that thing owes him money. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's crazy. Well, on on wherever I may roam, right. um, before the sitar part, before the do do right. do, there's that crash. That yep. that's a bass. Right, like that's Newstead uh, hitting the. I think it's the high string on his bass. Okay, uh, to make that that crash sound. Right, um, and it's. It, you know, it, it, listen, Cliff uh, brought something to the band that I don't think they could replace, but right. Jason wasn't just like a replacement level bass no. player. Like, right. he brought something to Absolutely. the band. Yeah. Um, he, I, I thought he brought, uh, I thought he, he um, you know, if, filled the shoes perfectly. Uh, he, he, uh, he filled the shoes. I also thought he brought a level of professionalism. Yeah. Clearly, he takes it very seriously. Yeah. Um, okay, so this isn't like they brought in some. This isn't like they brought in some dude who was like, "Woohoo! I'm a I'm in a rock and roll band now." No, and, right? Uh, you know, started and was, living it up. Like, I don't think he ever band. really lived it up. Some other metal band that was yeah. pretty established and whatnot. Okay, so a couple of things now that we're mentioning Newstead. Um, mm-hmm. uh, a year and a half in the life, if nothing else, is worth to see Newstead in the fucking uh, in, in the studio, glasses on ponytail yes always wearing mostly like all white yes not like black or whatever or something like a total Mm -hmm. studious nerd looking dude meanwhile that man has a mouth on him and i don't mean like sort of like he's a cursing person he (laughs) like we talked about i i felt bad for him when we first talked i was like oh man this guy got picked on and then i saw some kind of monster right after it and he's he's pretty like He's pretty kind of burned seeming in some kind of monster. They interview him and stuff, but he's got a lot yes. of good points and stuff. And we'll, yeah. we'll talk about a, a bit of that, obviously, when we get to the movie or whatever, when we talk to that about next in the next mm-hmm. episode. But 
I so comparing that with them this year and that a year and a half of the life, he they're giving him shit like we talked about. Like they kind of give him shit. He seems like the yes. odd man out a little bit. But that dude seems like he walks on water. Like his ego is every bit what a person in Metallica's ego should be, and he's the new guy, so to mm-hmm. speak. Like he is. He, he does not seem phased by it. And he seems like he's a bit of a shit talker himself and stuff, which was interesting because I he is. immediately, I guess, I, I guess I kind of like put myself in those shoes of like new guy on campus and getting a bunch of shit given to me and whatever. But like that guy, yeah, I, I, man, like you said, the professionalism and whatever and stuff, this dude, like he could, he could take the shit and he could give it too. I didn't see him ever talking bad about the other band mates, but like the, 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 the quintessential, the, yeah, I've got plans for those millions that aren't you. Like him just, like it rolling right off his back. I think it's part of the reason, possibly, yeah. that this shit kept going on. Is they're like, man, nothing phases this dude. Like, God, we could trash talk no. him all day. And they found their care, punch. You know? It's like they found their punching bag. Right. Yeah. yeah. They found their punching right. bag that uh, would just take every hit they gave him. Right. Uh, it was, I, I thought the dynamic with him was really, really interesting. And, um I, I got to go back and watch that tour documentary. One thing that we got to talk about sure. before we get to load right. is, is the Guns N' Roses tour. Okay. Yes. Yes. The Guns N' Roses tour. Is that in that documentary? Because here's the thing. I, so there's about an hour no. and a half of it. For one thing, I, I cannot recommend this documentary enough. It was, there's all these things sometimes mm-hmm. where it'll be like pictures of the Dark Side of the Moon sessions or something. And it's like some third party company mm-hmm. like tried to piece together a bunch of interviews. And it's not always bad or whatever. But you're like, dude. How cool would it have been to like basically let it be sessions all the time for these great fucking records and like just yeah. release the tapes? That's practically what this thing is like. I mean, it's like yeah. it's it's multiple takes of Inner Sandman, every part of it, multiple takes of the Unforgiven and whatever. Just like, man, wait, I can tell mm-hmm. right now that's not even the guitar part that got in. He is trying to figure out how Inner Sandman goes. You know what I mean? And then you'll see them hit where they get the take or one of the major parts of one of the takes. You're like, oh my God, that is it. Like that is history right fucking now on screen. It is so fucking cool to see this that like after like, and so that part is like an hour and a half. And I got to imagine this thing shipped with like basically a couple of videotapes or something or whatever, because then it ships on this whole nother thing that even has the same, a whole nother intro for it where it's like, now it's the on tour section and it's another two hours. And I kind of faded out about 30 minutes into that. Like, yeah, I did see the part you're talking about the roadie and stuff or whatever, but do they cover yeah. the guns and roses aspect of this in that thing? Cause I will go back and finish it. If so. They don't cover it in depth, um, from what I recall. It's again, it's been sixteen or seventeen years since I saw it. I don't remember there being a ton on that part of the tour itself. There are certainly clips from those shows, okay, uh, but some of the more dramatic events from that tour um, they don't really dive into on this documentary. They might have been done making it before that tour that that part of the tour okay. was really over. I, I don't say, know. Because, yeah, they, they would do Guns N' um, Roses a, a, a super solid by being pro about it and yeah. not mentioning some of the stuff that you're obviously about to get then into. That, that might have been... Well, and they might have been... I'm, I'm sure Guns N' Roses would have had to have given their okay to be in it. And that's true. So and, without and their okay, they wouldn't be able to so use anything. that's not going to happen. Yeah, true. Dude, okay, so one thing about the movie before we get into Guns N' Roses, one thing I love about the tour documentary is that it's really great. Because you mentioned like they show Inner Sandman over and over again. I think it's really great of showing two things. One, the monotony of the road. 
Um, And number two, how even with the monotony, it's really easy to get used to it. And it's really easy to get comfortable with it. And you see these guys kind of just live on the road. That's just their life. Um, Now, the Guns N' Roses thing. So I don't know how much you've read about this tour in the past. I mean, everyone's read about it a little bit, I guess. So the idea was let's get like this giant band, Guns N' Roses, and this other giant band, Metallica, and let's go play the biggest venues out there and let's have a massive, massive tour. And the problem is that Guns N' Roses and Metallica, from a personality standpoint, are complete oil and water. Okay. Like if if like Metallica, you know, they're pros, they show up on time, and then you've got Axl Rose, um, who's just right. and I mean, in know, particular they're supposed to play to last so- episode. A callback to last episode, you mentioned in particular that part of what Metallica, how they rose to popularity and stuff is that they might be drinkers, but it was never on the clock. Like they were consummate professionals all the time. They get Mm -hmm. on stage, they play like pros, maybe they party after, maybe they party before, but it doesn't fucking affect the the package, the product or whatever. Meanwhile, obviously Guns N' Roses famously is the opposite, right? No, Guns N' Roses was like, um, if you read Slash's book, it's a great insight into that band because, you know, you think Metallica was weird about, um, you know, they've got these porn uh, magazines up in the studio and, um, you know, they're having girls backstage and it's, it's really not that weird, but, um, you know, Slash in his book, like just talks about like, you know, this strip club next to the studio that he used to go to all the time. And he's really sad because it's not there anymore. <laughs> it's like, wait, Slash, it's, this is today now. This is now. This is, I'm in today too. You can make uh, bajillion dollars. Uh, bajillion dollars in your lifetime and live yes. all of the excesses or whatever. But sometimes it's just the little things at home that change, you know, that just really stick with yeah, you. Yeah, man. It just so, you know, there, but you know, Slash said in his book that it was embarrassing that tour because Metallica were pros. And I think Slash, you know, he was certainly a man of ex- excess as well, but sure. Axel was the guy. Right. Um, you know, you can get away with maybe being a little tipsy on stage, but if you just don't fucking show up, um, that's a problem. Or if you're supposed to go on at eight yep. and you don't go on until 11 because Axel's yep. not done watching a movie back at the hotel, um, that's a problem. And so yeah. it all comes to a head. It all comes to a head. And I guess I think there had been problems. I think there had been problems with Axel showing up on time already in this tour. And right. then Montreal comes. And Metallica goes on first. James gets burned by some pyro. He's in the wrong place or something. I thought that was um, St. Louis. So Metallica has to... No. The St. Louis incident was Guns N' Roses by themselves. Oh, was it? Okay. That wasn't even the that wasn't even a Metallica show. No, they've been banned from like more than one city. <laughs> um, so James um, James gets burned in in Montreal at the, the Olympic Stadium. The show has to end after just a few songs. But Guns so N' Roses is supposed to go about on next. Uh, so, so talk about that though. Like what happened? Because like in terms of burned, I, I think if, if for people who haven't yeah. seen the behind the scenes thing or whatever. Hmm. So I think what happened was he was he was in the wrong spot. Um, he got confused. Uh, some pyro went up during fade to black. Um, so flames from the score, from burned. the from the ground are going up around them like basically yeah. fire yeah, yeah, yeah. like yes. flamethrowers on the ground. Yeah, and it got like um, it got all up his arm, um, his hand. Yeah. That he he, he turned. With. My understanding is like he was supposed to basically 
turn left and instead turned right, like right into it when it hit off. Yeah. That, that, yeah. And, and so he, I mean, he gets burned pretty badly, has to get rushed to the hospital, uh, not able to play guitar for uh, months afterwards. Um, right. he, he makes a recovery. It's not life, not right, not life threatening, thankfully. But of course, the show ends that night. Right. Uh, the tour is uh, canceled for the next three weeks. Um, and when they come back, James is just singing. His guitar tech is playing guitar sure. uh, for him, uh, which is kind of weird if you ever seen video of James just singing. But that night in Montreal, Guns N' Roses was supposed to go on next. Right and save the day. Right and do their um, do their openers. Axel, make a huge, obviously a favor. Right, this is good night to be professional. Yeah, obviously. Right, holy shit! Like a tragic thing so has Axel, happened. The the set is cut to like three songs, and then mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Axel takes his time. They finally get out there. Axel is pissed because. Something about the monitors, and he doesn't think he can hear well, and he just says, fuck this, I'm done. And uh, after just a few songs, he walks off the stage. About two, three songs into and, the set, exactly the same. However, one yes. of these lead singers didn't just burn his body, like, yeah. No, Axel, and he said, uh, Newstead said he went into Axel's dressing room to find out what the hell was going on. And Axel said, oh, my throat hurts. But he's sitting there with like a vodka and like a vodka and a cigarette. Right. And Jason's like, well, if your throat hurts, maybe you shouldn't be drinking and smoking. Right. And like Axel wouldn't go back on. And that was it. And they rioted. Montreal rioted. (laughs) Like they had an all out uh, riot that night. And right. Um, I don't know. I don't have the totals of what the damage was, but Metallica, I don't think they ever got over that. Of no. you know, Guns N' Roses could have come out and played a killer two-hour set, yep. and no one would have left unhappy. Like right. everyone exactly. would have left. I gotta admit, like I didn't know. I didn't know a lot about the Guns N' Roses, any of this stuff, until I saw when I was young the Metallica behind the scenes thing, and that. And I know this. It's not like an un. It's not an unfair representation of what Guns N' Roses is, why they like broke up, why they're awful in terms of like live and whatever and stuff. And now, like you said, this reunion they did a few years ago where they're all each getting a million dollars a night and Axel is not whatever he was. Maybe he's just properly fucking medicated at this point. I don't know. But that was how I learned what who Guns N' Roses was. I knew, you know, I knew of Sweet Child of Mine. I knew at that point of, you know, uh, Welcome to the Jungle and all the songs or whatever. But I didn't really know who they were or whatever. And I saw that Metallica behind the music that definitely spends, you know, out of the hour, probably five minutes talking about this particular specific incident. And I was like, for the rest of my life. You know, Guns N' Roses equivalent to shitheads, like, just sealed the deal on my brain for the rest of my life. Like, I can never be bothered, ever. And people have tried. Oh, man, you really got to give this record a chance. Appetite is so good. And I'm like, no, man. I Just from, like, a personality standpoint, I just cannot get... Like, that is, like, that. that is a lifetime shithead move, right? I mean... Yeah, I'm... I, it's... I, it, so apparently, um, the riot was very similar to the St. Louis riot. Okay. Um, and I think the problem that you have is that Metallica is a band that airs on the side of man. We wanted we're doing it for the fans, like yep. they, and they will. Yep. I mean, they 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 show up on time. They play the hits, 
And Axel was a guy who he has like a personality disorder that he just did not give a flying fuck about the fans. Yeah. Like he didn't give a shit. Right. And not finishing a show. So there were there were I'm reading some notes here about that tour. There were some times when Axel did fight through some stuff on that tour okay. of some some real throat damage and huh. um, you know he got hit uh, got like like hitting the balls with a cigarette lighter <laughs> and he had to like go off stage and regain that's just karma and, that, that, but he came back that's karma <laughs> um, yeah but he but he came back out and it was all good um, so that it, it was it was all fine um, but they um, they I the funny thing is I had always assumed that that was um, that that was like um, the end of the tour, and it wasn't. That was almost the beginning of the tour, actually. And it just keeps on rolling, uh, and they, people keep on buying tickets. Anyway. They only they only canceled six shows, uh, but they picked it up like three weeks later. Um, so I've seen Slash write about this that uh, they did, Guns N' Roses did not make hardly any money in that tour uh, because Axel spent a lot of money and was always late. And when you're late, uh, and you had to pay the union. Uh, overtime to tear your stage down and everything like every and then the the venue charges you extra because you're running overtime yeah the venue's only getting uh, fine you're not by the make city money. and you and guns, pass that on to you yeah by the minute too guns and roses had all these guns and roses had all these extra musicians because you know axel has all these layers of of sound and right. um, and it just it wasn't a profitable tour for guns and roses of course it was for metallica because it's always been just the four of them yep. um and and they're they're pros they yep. do what they're supposed to do yep. james uh came back out it is weird to see video of james just singing with sure. a microphone right um and, and not playing guitar that had happened before back in the 80s a few times because James uh, broke his arm more than once on a skateboard. What the hell? Uh, while, he's a the while, while he's yeah, a band. Yeah, they were kids, man. They were yeah. they were kids, um, and so um, so this this is what he did. But he he got back to playing the guitar and everything, and it was all fine after that. And then Metallica went on to finish the Black Album tour um, after that. So right. um, that was. That tour was literally a year and a half. That's why that album is that 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 documentary is called "A Year and a Half in the Life of." Okay, um, it's a year and a half long tour, man, uh, with very few breaks. When you look at the dates on these tours, man, it is three or four nights a week. Um, a lot of times, it's like three nights. That are, how James sang through this tour, I have no idea. Like right. how he didn't blow his voice out over and over again, I'll never understand. Right. Um, so that's. That's I think that's the story of, of the Black Album, and to me, the story gets interesting after the Black Album when they get into Load and Reload. Okay, and I don't know. You watched probably more of the the well, that but that's the thing. You know what's really strange than I did. There's like there's a weird juxtaposition here, and I don't understand. Like there's this year and a half of and like i can see that when the album starts selling like crazy right obviously start fucking mm -hmm. running some tape you know let's record this tour this is interesting yeah. or whatever and obviously mm -hmm. i mean they're banned so there's there's like you said there's footage of other shows and stuff but like the let it be style like coverage of this record being made 
Like, did they have a premonition that this was going to be huge? Like, why? Like, why isn't... And maybe I didn't do the homework. Maybe there is the same exact thing for Master of Puppets. But like I was telling you, like, this was really shocking to me because I thought some kind of monster was really special. And like, man, these guys did fans of Solid. This is really cool. And to me, my, I guess, not really looking into Metallica a lot, my impression was like, that is a really cool fan service thing to do. And I was very shocked to hear that this existed about the Black Album. And it was so cool to see it. I it was I was very shocked to see that there's a three hour documentary on YouTube for free of like Death Magnetic and Saint Anger and like every fucking record, including Load and Reload, but there are only like little clips, yeah. which is really weird. So so Black Album does so fucking big, it is so huge. And and then for the load reload, all I can find is a couple of rockumentaries that just basically like interviews with the band, really. There's one that's kind of a behind the scenes that yeah. looks like it's related to this fan club thing where there's even like a part where some fans win some kind of contest and get to play with the band for a minute or whatever. And they, they get to go to the studio and they hear Ain't My Bitch like before anybody hears it or whatever. Um and like I mentioned, it did it did have the a little bit of them like hanging out at, at Lars's house, which is a regular house with like a nice basement. And the basement is where Hetfield and Lars are working on a couple of songs, and like it's where they wrote a lot of the songs before taking it, you know, into the studio with Bob Rock. I didn't finish that. There's like about two or three of them. If you look up Load documentary, there's there's like two or three of them that. I was just kind of rushing this afternoon through them. Some of them are 30 minutes. Some of them are like an hour or something. But like, I feel like compared to the Black Album 1, maybe it's because like, you know, there's so much like controversy about Load being the real sellout point or something like that. But like the band is walking tall in these documentaries and it's before maybe they, yeah. it's before the stuff comes out or whatever, but they are like, yeah, we're doing what we're doing. We're doing pro. We're bringing in blues kind of stuff. We've brought in some country like kind of inspiration. We're tuning things a little bit differently. We're like really expanding our horizons. And, you know, I think that that's, what's going to work for us because like, you know, just staying stagnant, staying as like parodies of ourselves got boring or we're not going to do that or whatever. Um, and they are, they're, they're walking real tall and it makes it seem like one of those things, again, like the egos and whatever made it because they made it through the black album and made it through that process of, be, you know, getting big boy mm-hmm. britches or whatever that with load, they seem more professional and more like they're ready for whatever Bob Rock throws at them. It doesn't, sh- it, it, the, the documentaries I saw didn't focus on him as much. You know, punching them around, pushing yeah. them around, or whatnot. I imagine he wouldn't have had to, yeah. especially given that you know, in the in the the Black Album uh, wiki, it talked about how Bob Rock was like never again, right? And they're probably like, well, it well, sold twelve million re- copies already. Here's uh, what is the sum? What is how much do I need? How many zeros do you put in this check to make you do this again? Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're Bob Rock and you had that much success, I'm sure. Um, you can you know give it a break. I mean, keep in mind, Load was recorded a good three years after exactly. the Black Definitely. Album, so yeah. they, they'd had some time to kind of simmer. So I a couple of things that I found um, interesting that I read about okay. that I really didn't know. I mean, obviously, if there was a big change in the music, but there was also a big change in the look of the band. Yes. Um, they they cut their hair. Um, they you know Kirk is wearing eyeliner. Um, uh, did you watch that? Um, I gotta say this right. Cunning stunts uh, <laughs> uh, movie. But try and say. A, can you say a little faster for me? 
Nope. Nope, I won't. This is the Me, I did this not, is the me Too I, era. So that sounds familiar. Cunning stunts. What is it? Okay, that? so it's it's a it's a um, it's a it's a it's a it's a professionally made. The band put it out, official release, um, and it's a show from the Load tour at the Tarrant County Convention Center. In oh, right. So it's like concert video um, of most of the concerts. It's really cool. It's yeah, and it's it's really well done. Nice. Um, I have not it's heard of that. Really, I, I, really cool. From this, it's a lot of really cool, like from the stage point of view shots. Okay. Um, and I, I really enjoy watching it because I, we get to a point there where like, I remember that show. I wasn't there, but I remember Metallica being in town Okay, and it being and like, news that Metallica had a big show at Tarrant County Convention Crazy. Center. Um, but one thing that you saw was, you know, the, the change in the look and, and reading about this, basically, um, what I found was, um, this was Lars and Kirk like pushing this okay. this change and not just the Do sound but the image as a whole because to, Lars to come back to the beginning where I thought I imagined this do you think them pushing this had anything to do with or could be possibly like seen as reactionary against uh Hetfield literally having a mullet at this time period a little bit yeah <laughs> more than you think i know you say that as a joke but um it is um, basically Lars and Kirk, especially Lars, had this idea that he didn't want Metallica to be known as a metal band. Right. He wanted it to be known as like a genre fluid, like a U2 type band. He right. wanted it to be one of those transcendent bands yep. that was bigger than any genre. Right. Um, um, and, and, and so that necessitated, all right, let's get rid of the really long hair. Um he said so james basically said he hated this he hated this really um, this this the because like the album cover for load is really weird it's really yep. different than any yep. other other um album cover. a lot of fans really hate it um, yep. still to this day apparently the, the cover um, is famously the, uh an artist uh semen uh smashed into some sort of uh glass whatever that makes it smushed together yes. and uh, artistically mixed with uh, bovine blood. So the, the listen, load we, there we've is, all, not, we've all... is, is not a metaphor. It's, it's actually just describing the album art. It sounds like um, we've all we've all tried we've all tried to squish our semen in between two pieces of glass. I, I don't fault him for that. I, right, just, especially and then weird. And just go take a take a healthy steak. You know, throw it on the grill, yeah. and then whatever's left in that little sort of you know packet that you get from the grocery, right. obviously go throw it. You know, throw it between throw the it glass in. as well, right? So, I mean, so a, a lot of a lot of fans, um, you know, James's point was that a lot of fans probably would not have been so upset with the music if it wasn't also for this change in image. Yeah. and he said, I yeah. think he basically says, I, I think we could have let our music evolve without forcing this change in image and this eyeliner and he said you know Lars and Kirk had this idea that um, they were going to be really almost like androgynous and like mm -hmm. they didn't mind if people thought maybe they were gay and like <laughs> they wanted to bust out of this metal thing so badly they were doing um, the U2 like the, just... the identity crisis right after the after the Joshua tree like Lode was acting baby basically yeah. 
you know? Yeah. Interesting. Well, it, it, I mean, the Rolling Stones wore spandex and eyeliner. But also, I mean, um, it was it was it was kind of the grace of God that this thing comes out and is heavily anticipated and whatever. Bef- mm-hmm. Does it come out before Nevermind? I, th- I remember when we were talking about Pearl Jam doing the re- the the research. Um, yeah, Nevermind came out in September of ninety one. Ten came out before it. User Illusion yeah. came out before it. Black Album came out before it. So all of those things had the benefits of the ones that were actually being like ten didn't do too well until actually Nevermind caught steam, and then it was a year or two later even that ten really took off or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. The Black Album, like by the grace of God, came out before Nevermind, which became this like crazy, like just the world is flipping and here's the iconic thing or whatever, right? Here's the iconic record or whatever. Um, But, you know, load is there, you know, at that time, um, obviously it did great or whatever, but, but like, don't they have to change? Don't, you know, like after, after nevermind, nevermind is the inflection point for hair metal is gone, done. Metal in general is Mm -hmm. done. It is now this, grunge thing which is the same garbage frankly there's enough parody in it and whatever that people who are really defining it like pearl jam do not want to be associated with it kurt cobain's over here trying to make like garage band in utero kind of records or whatever to get away from it you know or whatever but it is the thing it is pop culture i don't know that they could have done something you know it feels like it was a smart move you know um well, it, no, I, I don't, I don't, I, listen, we both are very clear that we fucking love the Load album. Yeah, um, it was my first I'm not gonna, I'm not going to say we love. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, uh, I probably was familiar with the Black album first, even though, I mean, I was only nine when it came out, so it's not like right. I was in line to buy it. But right, I was like, aware I mean, I, I had seen the Inter Sandman video as a kiddo, mm-hmm. but I just didn't, I don't know, it was, it was, you know, Pearl Jam and some other stuff was, was appealing to me or whatever I, but by the time load came out i was it was I, I had been way into the pumpkins and was getting into the cure because the pumpkins kept naming them as like the big thing that one of the big influences and yeah. it, do you remember that there's an interesting like little seg here okay of like a snapshot in time of stuff that's related to load to me do you remember blockbuster music Oh, yeah. Okay, Absolutely. so CD Warehouse came out around that time. Garth Brooks famously was the one suing against that Napster style, where CD Warehouse was a used CD chain that became across America. Now it's like, mm-hmm. you know, Half Price Books is a big one. The Phoenix in Las Vegas sure. area has uh, Zia Records. Any huge record store, Amoeba and whatever, has a huge used CD, used record area or whatever. But for whatever reason... There was a huge, massive backlash by the um, RIA against uh, CD Warehouse, which I think I think this actually ultimately left led to the Napster thing, where it was like the artists aren't making money when a CD gets sold back, and then this company is selling these CDs. But one of the big things about it was sure. the CD Warehouse. You could go there, you could pop a CD into one of their little CD players and listen to the whole CD. And you could listen. So there's yeah. there's this big backlash, yeah. and I remember in particular Blockbuster Music is where I couldn't afford the $17 CD that was like this Cure record that came out in 95 or 96 or whatever, but I got to go listen to it there and hear all of the tracks mm-hmm. or at least skip through them and be like, this record is, this is actually really good. And I tried out a couple other Cure records that I basically wasn't ready for, I guess, at that time in my life. I was like, nah, I don't like yeah. this one. I don't like this one. I don't like this one, but the new one I like. Right. And the other thing that I wanted, like sight unseen, was Load. 
And so I remember that coming out. And the other thing I remember is, did Until It Sleeps, did Until It Sleeps, uh, uh, precede it or did it not? Like, was it the Inner Sandman thing? Let me look that up real quick. I think the Until It Sleeps came out before the album did. I think Until It Sleeps was the first was the first um, because that was the first glimpse of this new look metallic. It abs- yeah, it absolutely was the it's the lead single. It came out on May, and then Load came out in June. So same thing, same, you know, a, a month lead time or something. So. I remember seeing that video, and this is another dating thing for like maybe some of our listeners, all three of them, had the same era mm-hmm. in their brain and don't really know where to push load. But Star Fox 64 was that on the Nintendo 64. And I remember alternately that summer, we went on a vacation somewhere and some of my cousins were there. And again, MTV is completely illegal and or my parents don't want to pay for cable TV. So we're at this like little vacation, sure. whatever, hotel or something. And alternating between trying to catch another glimpse of until it sleeps on MTV and playing the Star Fox games with my brothers or whatever. So that is the summer. We're talking about the summer of 96 load came out, uh, June of 96, uh, smashing pumpkins, huge album, melancholy had come out in 95. Kurt Cobain's dead a couple of years by now. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Bush might've been out at that time, maybe garbage. This is the era where it comes in. And like, if you think of those records, I mean, they, it fits and it's huge. It is a huge record. It, it sold 10 million copies, man. And reload apparently sold about five or seven. Like you put those together and it's like, yeah, that that's the same as what the black album sold and reload in my opinion, fit does not, (laughs) did not deserve 7 million sales. But, uh, it did well. Man, that, I, that, it doesn't. Well, that I don't think Reload. Good. I don't. I think we, we we kind of talked about Load and Reload in the same conversation. Absolutely. I, I, I don't think Reload is that bad, but basically, this was. I I think um, a real. Um, I would call this. I don't. I want to call it the peak of their creativity because you could call Master of Puppets that also. But right. I think this was the end. The end of their peak of creativity. Right. I think this was where. Uh, it never got better after this Absolutely. because this is where – so James and Lars sit in Lars's basement. They bang out. So their plan, James said, was like, all right, let's – we've got like you know all these tapes that we made um, in, in, on the Black Album tour. So let's, let's listen to these riffs that we came up with and let's start building some songs and let's cut it off at 20. Okay. And then they just kept going. Right. And so they were like, all right, man, they, we have 20 good ones. Let's make 30. Yep. And so they just, they keep going. It's, it, it didn't, the, the way it's been, dis- the way I saw it described is it didn't look like it. They felt like it was a chore. Like they really thought they had some good stuff here. Right. And they, they really were excited about doing something that wasn't explicitly metal. Right. Um, they really liked the idea of going really heavy, yep. but not you know speed not fast just really heavy they like yep. the idea of being able to delve into bluesy type stuff yeah uh, more bluesy types riffs um, there's there's definitely you know, three James, or four James did a, five songs that are sort of the the nothing else matters style now like the mama said one J- in particular. james james did mama said which is just a flat out country song i mean yep. that is a out and out country song um, um and I, I think the they, they like that and they Hero of the Day is oh, really yeah. off of there. That like in my opinion, until it sleeps is kind of unforgiven. Like it's kind of a 
it's kind of a little bit of mm-hmm. like a, a slow trudge, and then it like it then it obviously kicks into the Metallica song. Ain't no bitch was the first song, mm-hmm. uh, like on first song on the record, and that's a straight up Metallica song all the way through. There it, and there's a dun- bunch of them oh, in yeah. there in the middle, but like there's there's stuff in here that is like it, it's different. It's 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 in my opinion, it really is the Actum baby for um for Metallica, so, which you know for a lot of people is very like some people like oh my god, it was the next evolution. It is perfection, and other people are like. Yeah, it, maybe you're, it's like you said, the image thing, which I think is an important thing, man. I mean, that crowd, the metal hair crowd, your friend, you know, and I've got friends like that too, to this mm-hmm. day. Yeah. It is a part of their identity to wear all black and to have long hair, you know. Um, and it became, and, and, and for to them those to reject people, that or to and, evolve and, past it, that, that doesn't go well with, those, with that crowd, right? It became really cool to hate these albums right especially in that world yes. like it was just assumed you could not be a real metal fan if you really embraced and liked load and reload right. um and I, I i don't get that because i i listen to all kinds of different stuff i listen to a dwight yoakam album today um I, like i will listen to i i need a little bit of a, of a variety in my music right. i don't understand listening to just one thing right uh, that sounds the same over and over right. again right but I I looked back I I wanted to go back and read the Rolling Stone review of this album because I wanted to see like am I like how was it actually viewed at the time am I overrating it here right Um, was that was the the load sellout thing a cultural meme that maybe developed over time right you know like is it like that we're misremembering it that when Reload came out because Reload in my opinion man there's about three or four songs that are good I really like the singles I love Fuel I love The Mm Minimary Remains I I even like The Unforgiven 2 which is probably a very uh you know, her- heretical kind of thing to say or whatever, but I really like it. it. It just is what it is. I do not like the record. I've tried to listen to it a few times in my life and I can't listen to it all the way through. But here's the thing. This is a limit of technology. The CD could be, it was something like 78 minutes and 59 seconds. That's what the record company told mm-hmm. them. That was how long you could do the maximum. And Tool actually did this for Lateralis as well. Like it is goes up to within a minute of the end, if not a second. Right. Load literally goes to the last possible second. Mm-hmm. They apparently had to cut uh, the song The Outlaw a little bit short. Later on, there was a single, I think, for maybe Hero of the Day or something off Reload even, where they put the full version of Outlaw that literally the remix is called something like Not mm-hmm limited by technology something or other remix or whatever or the mix of it or something they and and this is important i I was texting you about this where i was like wait a minute because because the other night i was listening to black album then i listened to in utero and i was like okay i'm gonna listen to load and i I look it up i'm like isn't that a long record and i was like oh man hour and a half commit or whatever now to be fair Something like Melancholy is really self-aggrandizing. Melancholy by Smashing Pumpkins is two hours. It is two CDs. It is a quote-unquote double album in terms of CD length. But a double album classically, Quadrophenia, The Wall, um, those records, and yeah. User Illusion is another one that's out of control, how long it is, right? If you were to use, listen to them back, to, back and back, The Wall is 81 or two minutes. And I made a joke to you that the White Album actually is oh, 93 yeah. minutes, yep. which is also a double album. If you take Revolution Number 9, which ruins the album, mm-hmm. out of the album and make it into a magnificent album, now it's back down to 80 minutes or whatever. This is, this is a wall-length 
you know, <laughs> Abbey Road, yeah. or sorry, Abbey Road, uh, White Album length, you know, um, double yeah. album in terms of, you know, on records or whatnot. This is, this is a huge long ass record and reload is just like, man, they couldn't fit all of them. They got 14 tracks on there. Some of them are still the classic six to eight minutes or whatever. Bleeding me. I remember being like, it's eight or nine minutes or something. And that is my favorite Metallica song of all time. I fucking love that song. It was literally limits of technology that like, I guess, I'm curious, have they talked about, like, why they didn't release it as, like, just a double CD and put those, put a couple more tracks in it? Um, I've heard it be said before, um, although I couldn't find this today, but I've, I've heard this before that um, basically, you know, you have contractual obligations to release so many albums on okay. a record deal. And oh, and like a double doesn't double count album, as a double. It only a counts double. as one. Okay, okay. Yeah, and so the other uh, the other thing was it sounds like uh, it was just it was a lot to try to get on one album. They had a lot of stuff that they really liked. I don't know that they necessarily wanted to cut anything. Um, I also think that um, I don't know what the recording was like. I don't think they recorded them both necessarily side by side. I think it was kind of like, okay, these batch are done. Let's get out on the road for a little bit and let's come back and finish up these other ones. Yeah, and that was the thing I couldn't um, find. Like, I mean, I, obviously we can dig a little bit more uh, maybe before the next week or whatever. That was the thing I couldn't really find was a lot about that. Because I remember mm-hmm. when we were young, when this was all going on, I do remember like it being like the media was saturated with it and the like reload was actually still mm-hmm. stuff. And I remember like this... I remember this, like, I guess maybe urban legend that Metallica was really struggling when they made Load. And, like, they were really hard, having a hard time to, like, get it out and find themselves or some kind of bullshit. And, like, man, those old documentaries I was watching, like I said, they were walking tall. They did not seem like they were having a hard time with, like, who they were or an identity crisis or anything. But, like, this is what we're doing next. And it's great. And it's going to be great. You know, um, well, which is good I to them. That's, the, that's the interesting public, because what I don't, what I don't remember, what I remember is like that everybody hated it just because of maybe, like you said, the look and the difference of it. But I was like, this is an accessible, yeah. amazing record. I, I liked it. Um, no, it, it was really so. I went back and read the uh, the review of it from okay. Rolling Stone. Right. Um, I went back and read the review of the Black album and of this album just to see, like, man, what. Are we looking back on it kindly now because it's been so long and we just love the music of our youth and all that? Um, and man, they, the the Black Album review said all the things that we've always said about it, which was basically like, this is revolutionary. Like, this is totally different. This is Metallica growing, like huge step forward. Right. And then... For Load, I think it got four out of five stars. David Frick or David Fricky, the I mean, pretty famous Rolling Stone writer, he wrote the review for Load. Okay. And I mean, he's like, you cannot help but love this album. Like, right. It's okay. great. It's right. absolutely great. Okay. Um, he really doesn't have a bad thing to say about it. And yeah, some of the songs are pretty long. They kind of indulge themselves a little bit and what they wanted to do but he's like man from the very beginning like ain't my bitch like you cannot help but swing to that song no like, man. it's a great song yeah and dude. it just it comes right out of the gate and um, opens any and like it could open any great. metallica album and you'd be like yeah man I, I don't even care what the tuning might be different or maybe something about it being a little bit non-metal but man it hits right yeah it hits right away it's 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 got great hooks um, this is a band that like they, they've learned how to write um, 
really popular, accessible songs. And a lot of hardcore fans really hated that. Right. They, they just didn't like it. And I can see it. And, you know, what would Rush fans have done if Rush came out with an album of nice, like, five-minute rock songs? Um, you know, I, they probably wouldn't have liked it too much. Right. Uh, but Rush might have become much more popular also. Right, possibly. Um, you know, but but I they 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 made it work. It's a real big, heavy sounding album. Uh, there are some songs that really for for a kid getting into Metallica now, I think that is the most accessible album. Like right. that's the one that they could listen. That's the one that my son I think probably liked first. Right. Um, you know, like King I, nothing. Remind me. I think we um, talked about this last week. He'd be out of the house, like kicked out, if Reload was his favorite. Right. Well, he he knows well enough to know not to like it. I like <laughs> even it. if he's secretly but he's done. yeah he's 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 he saw enough like YouTube videos to know that it's not cool to like those albums, but he does. Um, uh, he, he you know, but like you know, a song like King Nothing is man, um, man that is a rockin' rockin' song, and I've seen him do it live once. Okay, um, and it's great, and they they don't shy away from this album at all live right. they play plenty of songs from it it's sold and 10 even reload copies. i mean they don't have dude to. even reload even reload like memory remains is a staple of a metallica live right show. that is a rad I've, song I've never, too that's it a is, great song it's awesome yeah no it's a it's a great song well, no, i thought reload that was interesting has, and fuel the, uh, fuel's a great song they play the, fuel the, every show the the what seemed like sort of the official 30 minute documentary thing of them in the studio for load um the one I sent you uh, on text today, um, it has, they're doing Memory Remains right at the beginning. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're yeah. I mean, and, and like we said, they came in with these 30 songs. And actually, I don't know how much you got to say about Reload, but let me read you this right out of here. I'm looking at um, uh, the, looking, looking at the background thing on Wikipedia and it talks about like why it was recorded this way. Mm-hmm. Um, hang on one second here. Uh the album artwork displays a photo by Andreas uh, Serrano, presumably the same uh, artist as the first one. The The Reload cover is called Piss and Blood uh, 26. Oh. So there's probably, okay. that means there's probably 25 other masterpieces out there uh, oh, yeah. for, for this. Yeah. But, but um, it talks about... Um, the original idea was to release Load and Reload as a double album. However, with problems recording so many songs at one time, the band decided that half of the songs were to be released and the band would continue to work on the remaining songs and release them the following year, which they did. There you go. In, the, yeah. It was in 97. Okay. Speaking about the recording sessions in an interview for Guitar World, uh, Kirk Hammett stated, we were going to do them as a, a double album, but we didn't want to spend that long at the t- studio. Also, if we did a double album, it would have been a lot more material for people to digest, and some of them may have gotten lost in the shuffle so that's that's interesting because that's true man like like i man i love the fragile by nine inch nails which runs a hundred minutes i love melancholy which runs two freaking hours and i I, whatever i was 16 or 17 or 18 when these records came out they're like parts of my identity but if Mm -hmm. anybody asked me to cut you know, a, a single album or a single album with a couple extra songs, like single CD worth of songs out of both those records, I could absolutely. There is stuff that no matter how great it was, they could have taken sure. half of those records and put them in a whole nother record and it would have been just as celebrated and whatever. And and like like they say, easier to digest. I think that's a really good way of putting it. There are, um, there are definitely Metallica um, fans who 
really love some of the deep cuts on these albums. The uh-huh. Outlaw Torn is one that you'll see yeah. a lot of Metallica fans say is like one of their favorite songs, right? Uh, which was not a hit at all, and I think it's pretty long. Um, man, Fixer, the last song on Reload, I think that's a great song. Really? Um, and again, it's I'm like seven give it another shot. Minutes. Like, do you? Do Fixer you is really good. Do you listen to these records? Because we talked about last week about how, like, at least for the first four records, it's kind of a when you're working out kind of thing or mowing the lawn kind of deal or something. Um, the, do you listen to Load all the way through? I listen to Blood, no, Black, I... and Load because I can listen to them all the way through, front to back. They're a great sit and listen experience. Um, yeah. Reload, I just can't. Do, do you listen to Reload that way? Uh, I, I don't listen to many albums period start to finish just because okay. i'm i'm it's not often i'm i'm in a time and place where i can just yeah. sit down and listen to a right. full album okay and even if i do usually i get bored and i move on right um, I, but with both of these you know with reload i'll listen through unforgiven 2 and then usually move on to something else but sometimes it's just like man you know Prince Charming, haven't heard that song in forever. Let's give that a re-listen. Um, you know, it's okay. it's and and I kind of did that for the purposes of this, just to go back to some of the deeper cuts to kind of re-listen because I haven't listened all the way through in a long time. Right. Um, but Fixer, Fixer's a really good song. Okay, I have to check that one out. Reload, and it's 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 really good. Um, I man, this record clocks at seventy six minutes as well. Holy shit! Yeah. So I, I think this is interesting means, because they okay. when they okay in terms of the wall, this is a quadruple album record. Mm-hmm. It's not it's like I, I for some album. reason yeah. thought the reload was like you know oh it's thirty minutes of extra stuff. This is this is not okay. So we talked about melancholy being two hours and that one being pretty like um, what do you call it uh, self absorbed ego mm-hmm. oh, like yeah. over the top or whatever this is 160 minutes this is a quadruple album record if you were going to listen to all of these that's but okay think about this though think about how hard these sessions must have been because this came out in nine reload came out in 97 yep. and saying anger didn't come out till 2003 like that's how right. long they took to decide all right let's go make another album like they, right i think this took a lot out of them um, doing this and I think the non-stop uh, tour slash album cycle that, that they've been going though? through they, since they did, they did Garage Inc. a year later which was like they did yeah, get like a bunch covers. of guys in the studio and do a bunch of great co- cover songs with a lot of like famous musicians and stuff I, yeah but that's a low pressure proposition that's a lot different from writing your own songs and that's I don't think that's comparable at all okay fair enough um, I do think um I think I think eventually it just becomes a little bit stale. Like you have this, you know, album tour, album tour, album well, but tour. No, no, no. And hang they've on, been hang doing on, hang that. on. No, yeah, check this out. Okay, so Garage Inc. happens, all right, in '98. S and M happens in '99. It's know, a live album, though. Uh, it's still, it's really cool. It was a cool project. Mm-hmm. It was like a a crazy, like you know, thing with a symphony, which, by the way, is mm-hmm. awesome. I love that fucking record. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're right. There is definitely between S and M and saying there's four years. But it, it definitely like uh, at the beginning of uh, uh, some kind of monster. It talks about it. it's the first record in seven years since Reload. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, right. I mean, I guess the undertaking is different. It's it's very. I think it's very very different. And okay. Um, and I think when you look at um, 
I, I, I've looked a lot at uh, like YouTube videos of concerts from like 98, 99. And I mean, they're still at the top of their game. They look great. What's, what's crazy here is that you know what eventually happens, which is James goes to rehab um, during some kind of monster. But um, none of that is visible through the albums, through the tours. No. Like you don't ever get the sense that this is a band struggling with any kind of substance abuse or right. um, anything like that. Like, it never bubbles to the surface. You don't ever see shows where, like, something's really off. You, even the show, um, you know, Newstead's last show, which was in 2000, um, which I don't think he knew at the time it was going to be his last show, but, um, man, I mean, that that show is amazing. Like, the crowd is into it. The band is into it. Like, it's fantastic. And they don't look like a band at all that is struggling. But I do think they're a band that really thrives on the road. And I think they got really tired of the studio. Um, hmm. And so that's why you saw this period in the late 90s when they didn't do anything original. You know, yeah, they got the Garage Inc., they got S&M, but they didn't go in the studio and make a new album. And when they did eventually go into the studio and make a new album, it was clear they really didn't have any ideas. Right. Um, and, and, yeah, but it, it I still do, in that documentary, yeah, 100%. Yeah, but, but if you look back at, but if you look back at Load and Reload, to me, it, it accomplishes, if, if, if Lars really wanted the band to step outside of a genre and just become essentially a legacy band, yep. um, they did it. I mean, 100%. they absolutely did it during that load tour. That was another tour where they like, they played Dallas twice within a few months of each other, um, or they played Fort Worth once and Dallas once, but within a few sure. months of each other, and right. like pretty much sold them both out. Um, not many bands have that kind of popularity where they can do that, and they had it then, and they still have it now, um, and it and it worked for them. Right. Um, so you go through the load and the reload touring cycle. Uh, once again, um, you have um, these things. Um, you have a th you have these things. They start doing in the early two thousands before they start San Anger, where they're doing the summer sanitarium tour, where they're playing stadiums with like six other bands. Um, you have a so there's a weird period of time there where James like blows his voice out. So Jason Newstead is singing lead. What um, for a few shows? Yeah, like when they played Texas Stadium. Uh, during that tour, James had like done something. Oh man, is that stuff uh, on? No, it, I don't. I don't think it might. You know, I've never looked for it, but it might be. But there's, I think, I don't think it was his voice. Like he threw his back out or something, and he had to miss like three or four shows. And Jason Newstead sang lead on a bunch of stuff, and then like Kid Rock would come out and sing lead on a bunch of stuff. Whoa, um, yeah, that's some it's special weird. stuff. That's crazy. Instead of instead of canceling the shows, right. uh, that's what they did. Um, and I always think it's weird. The behind the music stuff is funny because when all those behind the music docs were made, they were made 20 years ago and there's so much history between then and now. Right. Um, and it's funny the way they looked at each other at, looked at themselves then, because even then in that documentary, if you're watching behind the music, it's clear that they see themselves as like a legacy band right. at that point. Yeah, definitely. Uh, they already see themselves as like a big time stadium rock band on the level with ACDC, with the Eagles, with with um, you know any of these other major bands that can go sell out venues like that, they're up there, right? Um, and I, 
So, and, and, you know, one, again, thing, one thing that I thought I saw, and I, I don't quote me on this, but I thought I saw in that little mini documentary about the making of, um, maybe it was in the Rockumentary one, there was an MTV thing about Load or whatever, was that I think they took a whole year off after all of the craziness from the Black Album and like multi-years of touring. And while you've been mm-hmm. talking here, I've been looking through, and it looks like they got on the same tour cycle in general, like just this like, man, relentlessly playing at least half of the year, every fucking year touring, mm-hmm. um, all the way through 99. So like they start in 96 in June, right? Which is when Load comes out. I'm curious when they even recorded the Reload stuff because it's like, it looks like they, they tour through 97, pick up again for 97 for the Reload stuff. The Garage remains the same tour is 98, 99 stuff. Um, in 2000, they've got like a miniature tour. It's just a few dates. Um, and then they oh, didn't, man. they didn't do they, any shows from 2000 to 2000. Yeah, they exactly. Yeah. Shows. Right. It was from August 9th, 2000 to July 4th, 2003. Here we go. Yeah. So yeah. Did they just take a couple of years off? Did they really hate everything? Um, yeah. So what happened was in the, in the early two thousands, um, you know, they, they did that last tour um, in the beginning of 2001, I think it was, is when Newstead left. Um, and then shortly after, they started recording St. Anger, but then Hetfield went to rehab and he was gone for like a year. Like it shut things down literally for like a year. You know, here we go. It's your thing that you were just talking about, his back thing. His back thing mm-hmm. happened July 7th, 2000. Like you mentioned, that Newstead sang some of the songs, Kid Rock came. Uh, the guy uh-huh. from System of a Down, um, Jonathan Davis of Corn. Man, we got to find some recordings of these. Some of these. That is crazy, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And, and it makes sense because actually, for example, the openers were Corn in Kid Rock and System of a mm-hmm. Down for these different shows. Yeah. But so that happened to him on, let's see, July 7th of that tour, okay? And the tour ended August 9th, right? The yeah. July 7th, it went through. It was just like, he hurts his back. They are on on the 8th, the 9th, the 12th, the 14th, 15th, the 16th, the 18th, the 20th. They do not take a fucking break. They get to the end of that leg, basically, August 9th. And, like, that had that had to be hard, right? Like you're saying, like, this weird yeah, situation. Yeah, it did. And, like you said, like, he... And then, and then go on what you were saying. He took them out for a year, basically, after that, at least, because of his back problem, or... Mm-hmm. Well, uh, no, no, no. I think he... When they when after two thousand okay so in two thousand one so they the the tour ended in like the fall of two thousand or August of two thousand uh-huh. um, so they they take a few months off which I think was just normal time to take off um, Newstead left in January of two thousand one okay and they started recording um, Saint Anger not long after that okay so they didn't it wasn't that they were intentionally taking like time off like they started oh, recording okay it. okay okay but then, so not, but then not long after that but it wasn't yeah, i thought it was like they stopped it. from three years no you're right okay no so hetfield then hetfield goes to rehab and that derails it for like literally like a year uh they don't have a bass player so they can't tour they can't you know they can't do shows yet um so they just disappear for like a couple of years there where uh, they're making St. Anger and Hetfield's in rehab. Hetfield, and this is, I, I can understand okay, this too, okay. because like Tom Petty, like Tom Petty has said like, um, it, like you have this thing um, that, you know, this this tour cycle is, is really overwhelming sometimes because when you start the process of writing an album, you know as soon as you hit go, 
that's it. It's going to consume your life like for the next three years between Man. writing, yeah. recording, promoting, touring, and then oh, three years God. later, you're finally done with all that. Man. And then you take a few months off and then you start it over again. Right. And so Headfield And these guys um, are definitely... way, way over their pinnacle. No, or not pinnacle. Oh, they, yeah. They've hit the top echelon where like that's what it looks like now. They're not 23 what anymore is... or 25. No. I'm like, we can do even better. This is so cool. Like people know our names. That's pretty rad, you know, or whatever. It's yeah. like well, because they're they're there's a point in some kind of monster where Headfield's like, I'm like I'm tired of Metallica being bigger than me. Right. Like I'm more important than Metallica. Right, exactly. And I think he feels um, really beholden to the band. Right. And it, can any one member, you know, you know, can can Kirk step up and say, you know what, guys, I don't want to do an album this year. No, he can't do that. Yeah. Like if you the other guys want to do it, it's he's going to do you it. Mentioned that. You remember how we talked about Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley and how Paul comes in and like drops his book off and he's like, you know, Gene's life like revolves mm-hmm. around Kiss. That when I was watching some kind of monster, we can cover it more in detail. I, did, I got that same feeling that like Lars really like the band and it he's like really the CEO so to speak or I don't know yeah. about more interested in it but just like personally responsible for like it going on because there was a scene in some kind of monster was like that where it's like James is like yeah maybe he's out like he literally goes for a whole year into that rehab situation disappears right. and there are scenes of Lars being like man. It's he might not come back, but the Metallica is bigger than any of us. This is like a thing. Like this is a this is a institution, and it's not like he's like, oh, you know, what's the legacy of Metallica? He's like talking about like this is a, like you said last week, a billion dollar brand. Like there are lives yes. that like depend on this band existing and going on tour and all this kind of stuff beyond just the dudes yeah. who get on stage, right? Um, so and there's a lot of man, like, it, it uh, looks like stuff devolved quickly, man. Because I, I I didn't get this timeline in my brain. Okay, so in July of se- July seventh, back problem happens for him. Okay, that's not good. It's to the point that's bad enough that other people are singing mm-hmm. the songs for about a month of this tour while they finish it out. Okay, they finish at the end of August or middle of August. January, right? Four or five months later is when Newstead leaves. That's fast, right. man. That means things were devolving or things were coming to a head or something. I mean, that's quick. I always well, have this thought. I, I, no. In particular, in some kind of monster, Newstead says something like, you know, the other guys have kids. And I was kind of like, I want to do this other side project or something. And maybe it's mm-hmm. like you were saying, this three-year three cycle, one of them finished. And he's like, I'm done for a little while, guys, or something. And they said, okay, you're out, basically, you know, or whatever or something. But, well, like, that's quick. I thought it was like they had been sitting around well, for a couple of years. And he's kind of like, ah, come on, guys. Let's get it back together. No, no. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about up to Newstead leaving. And then we'll cut it off. Yeah. And then we'll talk about some kind of monster next yeah, time. Yeah, so yeah. So basically what... What happened was they they finished out this tour, and again, there's the YouTube of that last show that Newstead plays, and man, it's amazing. Like, it's just it's a well shot. I mean, it's home video, but it's really the sound is really good. You can hear how into it the crowd is right. from the very beginning. Right, uh, it's awesome. Okay, uh, doesn't look like a band that's on the verge of breaking up at all. Right, um, but it is. It's Newstead's last show. It's the last show before Headfield gets sober and goes to rehab. Um, but it, it doesn't show at all. Um, they're into it. It's an awesome show. Um, basically, they it sounds like what happened was they had a meeting in early January of 2001, and Newstead um, had this side project called Echo Brain that 
the, the record label liked. I, I guess the record label thought it was kind of cool, and the the record like Metallica's record label was going to help him promote it. Huh. And Hetfield was like, "Nope, yep, not going to do it. Yep, this is you're in Metallica. You are only in Metallica." Right. And Hetfield was gonna he was gonna stop it. Right. Um, and Newstead uh, basically you know he thought it over for like a couple of days and a few days later he tells the band he quits yep. he's done yep. and i remember that i remember that happened i remember that being news that like jason newstead had quit metallica and at the time the issue the, the statement he issued said that like it was due to like the damage he had done to his body through the years of all the headbanging and everything right. but, i mean it was strictly <laughs> it was strictly about this echo bra- fucking echo brain he left metallica over echo brain, man but like which, did uh, they even did they even put an album out did I, echo brain I, 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 ever even materialize right, but then he goes on and he gigs with ozzy and stuff too which is way past ozzy's peak he does. and whatever yeah Dude, he looks like he's having a good time. There's a moment where literally Lars takes his little hat off and has it in his hand and is like weeping practically with Bob Rock while they're trying to dick around in the studio and they go to see this Echo Brain show. Jason fucking mm-hmm. snubs them. He runs out the back yes. before anybody else is like able to get backstage. And Lars That's is sitting right. there like lamenting like, did he do the right thing? Like, are we done? Are we over? Like, is this... You know, because it was like actually a pretty good show. It sounds like and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, man, I don't know. It'd be, it'll be interesting when the bios come out to hear about this this six month period. Like what yeah. went? No, down, I I, you know? I can't wait because it, it sounds like uh, Jason uh, left, but still kind of had the impression that they were still friends. Okay. Um, I don't want to talk too much about that because there's a lot in the documentary sure. about that that I want to talk about. Right. But, um, it doesn't sound like he thought they were necessarily leaving on bad terms. And you saw in the movie the guys do go to his show, the Echo yep. Brain show. Yep. Um, they, you know, still sounds like they try to be supportive. But, um, you know, he he just he, he he couldn't believe that he had this project. The record label was into it. It didn't sound like Metallica at all. Right. Um, it sounded like. Um, he just it didn't occur to him that this would be a problem right and um you know and headfield you know, had a problem with it headfield and then, and then headfield like you know months later practically goes into rehab for a year his life has fallen apart from uh, who knows right i mean like that back thing right. being debilitating i can't imagine right um, who knows what he was taking to, yeah, to uh, yeah, make that feel better yeah. and and yeah. all that and and I you know we'll we, again that's something we'll we'll talk about but yeah. um, I think that ends an era of Metallica like yes. everything changed that it's a different band it is a well, fundamentally and Reload, different band when they Reload come back. still I mean obviously like we we mentioned it it did sell upwards of close to ten million records still. Or whatever and stuff, but it kind of landed a little bit with a thud, sort of. I don't know, man. But like Garage Inc. came out, which was the covers, and it had like uh, whiskey in the jar and turn the page. Yeah. And I remember those two videos, or maybe it's turn the page in particular. I think no whiskey in the jar, the one where it's like a bunch of like like it's a house party and there's a bunch of scantily clad women hanging around with the band basically in this house or whatever and stuff. And it was like the quintessential classic like. Like almost like a send up of those kinds of um, videos, you know, the Motley Crue Guns N' Roses videos from the early 90s and stuff. And I love that video. It was so well done. Well, it was really colorful and stuff. It was, yeah. And they looked like cool we, rock stars. It wasn't this like, oh man, chicks are digging me and stuff. It's like these dudes are hanging out and they're like, of course there are ladies around, kind of like just debonair, like 
professional like these guys are gods amongst men it's like led zeppelin making a video it was it was really cool i thought um i haven't watched it recently yeah and i like they they did all right i I mean that covers record obviously did fine too um it did but at the same time like i wonder how much that factors into it of like reload like and basically their their reputation getting tarnished a little bit i i'm curious does metallica covers uh publish the the seat numbers were seat numbers really going downhill before the back injury happened or anything or oh like like attendance yeah. like show attendance yeah. no it, it was no 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 up until the the late two thousand the, the early two thousands it was still strong okay they were still in the late two thousands they were definitely still uh, at at the time or not late two thousands in the late nineties early two thousands still the top of their game okay um doing the summer sanitarium stuff they're basically selling out stadiums okay um they are the garaging thing i don't think was huge i mean that that did earn them a little bit more mainstream appeal yeah, but it was, there are it was some just some metallica fans they did with some other man there are still some metallica fans that yeah. hate whiskey in the jar yeah um i love it i think it's a great yep. song and i like the thin lizzy version too yep um, but I, I don't have a problem with it, yep. but there are Metallica fans that absolutely hate it right. and they don't play it live very often. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and they played it in Ireland, um, huh. on this past tour because right. that's where Thin Lizzy was from. Okay. Okay. But, um, you know, but anyway, I, I, you know, I, I think they were still on top of their game. They played, um, on that tour, they played like a new year's Eve show at the Pontiac Silverdome in front of 60,000 people. Okay. Um, and they, it's just, man, they, to me, I think by that time they were a band that was like, what else are they going to do? Like they've done it. They've, they've, they have, uh, mixed, uh, a couple of different genres into their music. They have totally transformed. They've totally changed. They have become nothing but more popular with each one of these changes. Um, they have sold out every huge venue in the world multiple times. Um, you get to a point where it's like, what? What else are we supposed to do? Exactly. And, I think, and Newstead is I like, think, you know, he's like, yeah, he's he's basically, he's like, I want to do this thing on the side, right? And and or yeah. who knows, maybe he was like, kind of up to part of it was like already, you know, just that kick to be like, I'm ready to retire. Like this has been great, guys, but it's been maybe, yeah, you know, an entire decade or 15 years, maybe. When did he come on? 85, 87, 86. Seven. I think that it was yeah, some right kind of monster. Yeah, he was five, mentioning yeah. something like decade and a half, which maybe was tongue in yeah. cheek. Maybe it's thirteen years. No, but dude, that's about, a lot no, of your fucking. The yeah. dude spent his twenties, all of them, obviously probably having excess, a lot of it, but on the road, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah, brutal, right? Um, yeah, man. Cool. Um, okay. Well, he, yeah, it was. It was. It, I. I think that's a that's a really interesting era of of Metallica. It's my favorite era. Right. I think. Mine too. Um, I, I really I find it to be the most listenable, um, and man, it pop in, load, and turn it up. And yeah, that's just that's a great. I'm gonna have to check out Reload care. again too, man. I, I tried it, but like I didn't. I don't. I, the only ones I know were the singles from it, and like I, I and Load is one of those records that like for whatever reason I don't think I burned myself out on it. Like I can't listen to Nevermind, but I think that Nevermind in my in my opinion is a little bit cheesy or something. But like mm-hmm. it, that and Ten, if I listen to those, I just fall asleep. I cannot like pay attention. But Load, man, like it. No. Uh, man, it, same thing as I, it's I, like I David Baby is the same thing. There's there's a certain echelon of a couple of records in my brain that are just like 
these records, like no matter if you like the band or not or whatever, you cannot. Mm-hmm. The, it, Rumors was another one. I don't like. I like. I like the self-titled album, obviously, which is Rumors 2.0 or whatever. But I mean, like, I'm not a physical graffiti guy. I don't like the Fleetwood Mac blues stuff, you know, or whatever and stuff. I'm like, yeah, Led Zeppelin four, and I would put the Wall and a lot of Pink Floyd records, and I would put Rumors and Actum Baby, and I would put Load in the Black album. Man, I like prime records that I could hand down to another generation and be like this, you want to look at cream of the crop or like really good. And it's not just as representative or something of the nineties. It's just a fantastic record that came out in the nineties. It it is. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's great. It completely holds up. Yep. Um, It, it, it doesn't sound dated. dated No. Um, Whereas like, yeah, you get a mega death record and a mega death record still sounds like early nineties, late eighties metal yes always you know yeah for better or for worse people no, like that but yeah yeah so <clears throat> next time we we're gonna talk about uh some kind of monster i'll go right. ahead and say got, ahead I, of time I'll, i'm gonna consider this to be my uh my opus uh, some <laughs> kind of great. monster. i got I, I got a I, couple of things that we got to talk about like yeah okay. some weird metallica trivia that is personally related so my girlfriend was five years old when the st louis uh guns roses thing happened she was at that concert yeah. and her parents doped out a little bit early apparently before the riot oh happened gosh. okay oh another gosh. weird thing is that the guy who taught dave mustaine's kids how to swim lived in jane's hometown and her mom uh dated him for a little while or whatever didn't go on very long because this guy had his life together which was not jane's mom's kind of thing or whatever <laughs> but jane when she was like nine or ten or something like got to know this guy and he told her some stories and it was like it, she was she was enthralled because it was like this guy was a rock star rock star right and like the concept yeah. of somebody like teaching his kids how to swim and like hanging out with them and stuff it made her like she was like, oh, my God. And she had heard of L.A. already at that time, obviously, in New York and whatnot. But the guy, sure, but Dave sure, Mustaine, sure. apparently lives in the Phoenix area. And that was, like, what put huh. it on the map for her personally of, like, what is Phoenix? What is Scottsdale? Which is literally, like, the Plano of Phoenix. Like, right. it is, like, completely, like, mini L.A., you know, a, a few hours drive from L.A. It's gross. It's really like rich people, like I, I hate it personally right. or whatever. Yeah. But I thought that was interesting is that like, like for her, at least this weird personal attachment, you know, you talked about how Santana's brother or somebody like has been at Thanksgiving dinner with you. Well, hey, mm-hmm. I've got, uh, you know, I've got attachments to Mustang apparently. So <laughs> man, that's amazing. That's rock royalty. <laughs> that's rock and roll um, history right there that, you know, I, I <laughs> you know, you, I'm, I'm going to leave it at this, uh, because you, you mentioned Megadeth and it just made me think of this, sure. uh, this article that I saw, uh, not long ago from the onion, a, a reputable news source, um, <laughs> that says, uh, the headline was humanity still producing new art as though Megadeth's rust in peace doesn't already exist. <laughs> And I think that's it. <laughs> that's great. That's great. All right, I got it. I think Jane, I think Jane will appreciate that. that. That's hilarious. Okay, we got to run through a couple of things because Metallica is so freaking big. We got to do this. Yeah. Yeah. When you're listening to these records, what do you do? Because the first uh, four if, are if, pretty fucking a testosterone and a drill and heavy. These ones, not so man, much. Man, these are too. I think they are. I think they're just different. Right. I think to me... Uh, they get me just as fired up as the first ones, and probably more so, just because I like the heavier, uh, kind of more driving uh, beat that they have. 
um, okay. versus the kind of more speed that the the first albums have. So sure. um, no, I like a uh, if I'm headed to a, a hockey game, uh, put it you know turn it up in the car, crank it up uh, as I'm on my way there. That's uh, another good uh, treadmill. Uh, these are good treadmill albums. Okay. Um, so yeah. Okay. No, I I don't think they're uh, that much different. I don't think it's much different from from the first ones. So I'll say, uh, but I enjoy them more. Right, I'll say for me, uh, I definitely like I mentioned earlier for Black Album, I can make it through like nothing else matters. I can stop at the Unforgiven. It's one of those records I really mm-hmm. don't feel like I have to listen to. I am compulsive about some records that I've got to listen all the way through. Like it's just so good all the way, and it just seems like a like 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 a switch in my brain flips that I've got to go back and start over to listen to it all in one sitting if I don't and load is one of those where it's just like man I you know I can sometimes like there was a period in my life where my girlfriend for some reason one morning started random she does a great Hetfield impersonation by the way um <laughs> she one morning sang king nothing out of just randomly and it was stuck in my head for like weeks which is not That's a complaint great. But I had to wake up every sure. morning and I was like, I've got to put this song on to get it out of my head, which is how that does work for me. It doesn't stick it deeper in, but it's just like a thing. And mm-hmm. it, but at the same time, like I, I, I've got to listen to that record top to bottom. I think it's a great record to drive through drive to. Mm-hmm. And it is. I think it's a good if you can get the one hour or whatever it is, hour and a half time to sit and whatever and turn a stereo way up loud. Man, Load yeah. is a great one. Black one also is really great. Reload, oh, yeah. I, I'm I'm a hits guy where like I'll listen to some of the songs. I will say that there have been times where I literally have cleaned my house a little bit listening to like Whiskey in the Jar on repeat or whatever. Sure. It's a great cover. Yeah. It's awesome. It is. It, I love it. Yep. Okay. Uh, out of this era, things that people have got to know or whatever and such or like whatever we just mentioned man youtube look up metallica documentary and from every fucking era apparently there's so much stuff there's a bunch of stuff that's like the behind the music from mtv days all kinds of stuff that was mtv vol specials that are on there there's a lot of stuff there there's apparently a um i just sent you a screenshot before we got on here there's a fan club by them that is called so what that was like you could be in this fan club and i don't know if it still exists or not but they would send magazines every uh quarter out that was just like 48 pages of metallica news and stuff in particular this thing got abridged into a 273 page book called so what the good the mad and the ugly in 2004 that has like the hits of all of this from at least like the first decade of it or something obviously because that was it started in 93 this goes through 2004 which is kind of weird it's like after the black album like the the magazine basically existed in this era you and i are talking about is our quote-unquote prime era right it's not like and justice for all history and stuff it's really it's literally like a document of 90s metallica i'm looking forward to checking that book out. um i uh, i actually think my son might own that okay Cool. I think it's very possible he owns that. That sounds familiar, and I think it's in his room right now. Okay, that's awesome. You have to let me know if it's just like a big, you know, picture book or something, or if it actually has like some cool, you know, multi-page Rolling Stone review style or Rolling Stone article style stuff in it. Uh, but that looks pretty cool. And yeah, man, I gotta say, like, I think YouTube uh, for this. You, you mentioned like you did send me the link to the Newstead his last show and whatnot. There's. And there's obviously the cunning stunts thing. Is that the only thing? Did they do other live like 
there's Garage Inc. is technically from this era. If we're talking about some kind of monster coming up or whatever, and the S&M show, which is a uh, a show where Metallica played a lot of their songs. It's a double CD that came out of them playing with the San Francisco Symphony, I think. I guess we didn't talk about S&M at all, but yeah, it's basically they play with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. Um, a lot of their songs are kind of re uh, reworked yep. uh, to allow for Orchestra. string arrangements. Yeah. Um, it's it's awesome. really cool. It's really different. They just did that again this past year. Right. And is um, it coming out or um, not? I think it's supposed to, but Headfield went to rehab right after that. Okay. So I think they put kind of everything on hold. Okay. He's, he's out of rehab now, but okay. um, I, I think they kind of put it all on hold for now. Um, but, I, you know, the S&M thing is really cool, and that probably brought um, some more mainstream fans. There was a hit um, called No Leaf Clover. Uh, no Leaf Clover came from that. Okay. That album, which we didn't even talk about, but No Leaf Clover is a great song. And uh, they they play it live still with a backing track um, uh, for some of the parts that that they can't play. Right. Um, but um, no, that that was that was really interesting, and I think that is a uh, again a good example of a band that probably was tired of the whole tour album cycle and were looking for other things to do. Right. Uh, to keep themselves occupied at the time uh, without going through that same cycle over and over again. But there's the 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 say it right cunning stunts um <laughs> that's really good it, it's on youtube for free the whole thing um and there is also there there's some extras on that there's some backstage stuff um cool. that's really really cool just of them in their dressing room because it's like their first show back after a couple of weeks break um and there's just some fun backstage you know behind the scenes banter of like uh, you know these guys that are kind of seeing each other again for the first time in a couple of weeks and um, you know about to go play a show and Kirk is complaining that he put on a couple of pounds and his his outfit doesn't quite fit right and, uh, <laughs> you know there's really fun I mean there's there's a they seem to not have a problem having cameras all over the place all the time well uh, we can they, talk they about that some kind of monster but they they talk about that in that show or it's like they just at some point i guess as a black album they started thinking like we're supposed to have cameras around all the time like for the fans basically yeah. what a weird yeah. way to start doing your work and living your life in the studio and stuff mm-hmm. um uh, it is one more thing the the thing we usually mm-hmm. say is people trying to get into this we've talked about a little bit especially like you talked about the last bands and then also like and then what, what you might recommend like i in particular would recommend Ozzy Osbourne's like Osmosis record in particular was like, I swear to God, it sounds like some studio put a ton of songs together for him that like just completely perfectly hit the Metallica nineties feel or whatever. That record is awesome. Mm -hmm. Awesome. But to me, it goes along with like the load reload sort of black album feel. Like it is like the lost Metallica record in my opinion. And I don't, I've listened to like bark at the moon and a couple of other records and they just, they're, they're great records, but they just don't have that particular feel obviously. Cause they weren't released in like 97, 98, but that record in yeah. particular really evokes the same kind of feel. And then in terms of songs, what I would recommend, obviously, like you said, if you're introducing anybody to Metallica, it doesn't matter what era, you're going to say Inner Sandman to begin with. And we limited ourselves sure. last episode from saying that because we talked about just the four first four records. But the songs, in my opinion, here are uh, Inner Sandman, uh, The Unforgiven, uh, Nothing Else Matters, 
I mean, most of the Black Album, man, there's like six singles off of it that were on the radio. Sad But True. Oh, yeah. Wherever yeah. I May room, Roam. Um, Don't Tread On Me, now that I saw the lyrics. Like, I remember that one. Basically, all of the Black Album, and in my opinion, all of Load as well. Although, the ones that you'll recognize off that if you haven't heard them are is Until It Sleeps and Hero of the Day. Um, right. I think. No, if you if you hear you know like load to me king nothing oh is that's right the one that, that stands a, out is like yep that's that's my favorite off of off of that album okay um, I I really love hero of the day yep I don't know if that's load or reload now but that's load uh, to me to me the two are interchangeable yeah. um, fuel is obviously off, off of reload, reload which is one of their biggest songs ever too and so is so is memory remains yep true um, off of reload but. Um, no, I, I, I love Ain't My Bitch. I love um, Until It Sleeps. Yep. Um, I think that's a great song. Um, there are some... If you're if you're someone who's never listened to Metallica, I would almost hesitate to tell you to listen to Load first right. because it doesn't necessarily sound like the rest of it. Exactly. Whereas the Black so Album really does. Black Album's really yeah. the, the change over that, that encapsulates all of it. Uh, yeah, if you listen to Black Album and then Load, I don't think you'd be disappointed in either. But if you listen to Load and then some of their earlier right. stuff, I agree. Uh, I could see you scratching your head. Right, like, this is the same band. Right, because um, it's not. But I this brings us back to the beginning of the conversation, which was, um, you know, why, how did Metallica remain so relevant through the years when these other metal bands didn't? And it's because they decided they didn't want to keep being a metal band. Yep, and they let themselves change. And something happens with bands where, like Oasis has said, like Noel Gallagher said, like the first two albums were so huge, and then they made their third album where they had carte blanche, right? They could do whatever they wanted. Right. Um, and it, it, it didn't flop, but it flopped by their standards. Sure. And it's thought of as like one of their worst albums uh, is their third one. And that didn't happen with Metallica. Like they were able to do what they wanted to do, and instead of doing that, they brought in a producer and told that producer, like, push us. Exactly. Like, really push us to make a great album. Yeah, man. And that's why these guys rose above everyone else. That's true, man. Because, like, they could have started, to, they to really could have started stuff. phoning it in after Master of Puppets, right? And, and just been, like, a lot, a lot of bands. A lot of bands peak at one record, maybe two. And then a lot yeah. of them have, especially have Master of Puppets success. And they're like, we're done. That's it, man. We're skating. Yeah. You know? Um, yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Guns and Roses couldn't because they, you know, it, Axel had to indulge in every bad instinct he had. Right. Um, you know, they, they, they couldn't do it. They wouldn't give themselves over to an outside voice um, who says. And one thing I'll say is, remember I said in the last episode about how Cliff Burton was like um, a really good kind of go-between between James and Lars. Ah, and so Bob Rock was. took that, that it, place. Oh, it was. Okay. But one thing James said about the whole image change uh-huh. with Lode was that he said, I wish Cliff had been around because he was a stronger voice and I think some of that stuff probably wouldn't have happened okay. if he were still there. He would have said, like, don't put this James, track on there, basically. No, not necessarily track, but just the image. That we're going to cut our hair. We're going to wear Oh, he'd hair, be like, fuck that. Are you kidding thing. me? Yeah. He said, he, he specifically said, like, Cliff probably would have been the voice of reason to step in and say, no, come on, guys. Yeah. We're not doing that. Right. Like, he would have been the guy to do that. Yeah. The music could have stood alone without the image change. And I think if that would have happened, 
they probably wouldn't have taken the shit that they took for that. Yeah. I, I think, man, I really it, think that was a big part of it. Man, it seems like it would have cut either way though, man. Cause like it was, if you look at the black album, like era, the way they look and whatever, and try and stick that, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just doesn't work. Right. Some of them did keep their hair yeah. a little bit short. Kirk Hammett put it back out, you know, or whatever and whatnot. But like, it, it, I don't know the the image thing. You know, you two suffer the same crisis, right? Yeah. Billy Corgan well, at the, every, at every the peak man. of his whatever shaved his damn head to to, to I, tell the whole world that he's having identity crisis. You know, it, I swear it was, God, it was when inv- I saw the pumpkins. It was in when I saw the pumpkins thing, last man. year. What when I saw the pumpkins last year, Corgan was wearing a skirt. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that is not the first time. Um, we can't. I yeah, cannot I, wait I, until we get into our seven part Smashing Pumpkins thing, and we'll get to Machina where that uh, that starts happening. God. It's good. Oh man. <laughs> um, all right, man. Well, that was uh, that was that was dynamite. That was a good three hours on uh, the '90s Metallica. Which it is, is uh, just how my wife envisioned me spending this evening. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh... Well, uh, you guys are uh, going on vacation in a few weeks, so hopefully that'll we'll be able to make that up, make up for that. We'll make it up. Yeah, but uh, we got to be ready for for some kind of monster. I'm going to rewatch it. Cool. Um, and uh, let's uh, let's get into that one real soon. Okay. Cool.